Hello, Super Science Happy Hour fans. This is a special message from Matt Johnson. And Matt Krauss. Uh, Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. Uh, we're very sorry about the long delay between episodes. This uh, episode you're about to listen to was actually recorded in late September. Uh, but now, as of late December, early January, we're only now getting around to releasing it. Uh, we're now in the same time zone, and so hopefully this will be coming out more or less regularly. Maybe once every one or two weeks. All right, so again, sorry about the delay, and hopefully a new episode after this one in the next couple of weeks. Yay. Auld Lang Syne. I am a scientist, I seek to understand me. All of my impurities and evils yet unknown. I am a journalist, I write to you to show you. I am an incurable and nothing else behaves like me. Okay, uh, welcome back everyone to the Super Science Happy Hour with Matt and Matt. I am Matt Johnson. I'm Matt Krauss. And this week we have another special guest with us. Are you there? Hey, everybody. I'm Andy. Yay! Woo! Uh, Andrew, Charles, Barnes, McGillicuddy, <laughs> Flenderson, <laughs> Bellamer, right? Esquire. Uh, <laughs> uh, so welcome, Andrew Bellamer. So do you want to maybe introduce yourself, and we can, you know, add in colorful stories from your life uh, as as needed as well. Okay. So uh, I. Went to graduate school with Matt and Matt. I was a couple years ahead of them, and right now I am a postdoc at a university in the uh, United States Southeast, and I am studying the neurobiology of uh, Drosophila, studying sensory neurobiology, and... Which is the best kind of neurobiology. Sensory... I mean, yes, of, of course. (laughs) <laughs> is there really anything such thing as good neurobiology well no but <laughs> <laughs> well it's all good right well it can be done well but it doesn't yes. seem to be pleasurable for <laughs> anyone well, well right right of course <laughs> least of all the fly but i just oh. saw this paper about uh, a lab that studies like the circuitry involved in, in uh well voiding and one of the projects they have going is training rats to pee on command. Nice. Yeah, so, so that actually did perk my day up because I was like, this is, this is much better than that. Like, my goal <laughs> is not to be covered in rat urine at the end of the day. Whereas their goal is to be covered in rat urine, I guess. It, well, there's an R. <laughs> R. Kelly joke in here somewhere, but I'm just not sure exactly. <laughs> yeah, I don't know Trapped if we can. the animal facility? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's a whole series of papers on uh, C. elegans defecation as well nice. that are pretty interesting, actually. Um, this weird sort of neurotransmission between the intestine and muscles and stuff. It's it's interesting. Wait, they can poop? Oh yeah, but they can. Don't they explode from having too many eggs, or the, is that just a mutant? Well, yeah. So they, I mean, they can explode from too many eggs, but it's entirely different uh, parts. I'm looking for, there was just an SMBC comic. Oh yeah, I was just looking at that too. <laughs> which, which one were you looking at? Maybe it was shared by someone who's friends with both of us on Facebook. The turtle one? Yeah, it's, it's the new one. Uh, looks like it's now the yesterday one or something. Ah, uh, yes, oh. Animal Pals. Uh, we might have to link, well, we're going to have to cut out a lot of this like 
nonsense as we usually do. But uh, yes, I enjoyed this one. And I thought about sharing it in our animal sex segment. Uh, <laughs> uh, so for those <laughs> for those listening in the podcast, because nothing is funnier than explaining a comic strip uh, verbally. <laughs> <laughs> the basic punchline involves a turtle claiming that he can breathe through his cloaca. They can, I think. Which I'm sure is true, yeah. And he goes on to explain that it's a combined anus, urethra, and genitals. And then the other animals in the comic look shocked. (laughs) (laughs) And then there's some other funny stuff that happens, but maybe we should just link to it and not try to explain it. All right. Well, so yeah. So Andy, uh, you were, yeah, I think you were just a year ahead of us in grad school, right? Oh, Um, yeah. Yeah, it was just a year. That's right. That's right. We just, I just lived in fear of you for six months while you were my principal's TA and walked past me going to class as I tried to finish the papers. <laughs> well, Andy also has the dubious honor of being my uh, student host or whatever they're called when, uh, we, when you and I, Krauss, were being recruited to this neuroscience program. Uh, Andy was the one leading me around and uh, I guess so indirectly responsible for my, my fate of uh, coming to Yale. Yeah, I, th- I seem to remember at least one point when I was leading you around when I had to say, like, okay, I don't, I don't know where this is. Like, do you know where this is? I... <laughs> <laughs> Which, yeah, I guess I might have because I was – you were, like, uh, working down at the med school and I, you know, having been a former undergrad at the same place, uh, yeah, I might have known where the place was. Uh, and also, so we, we already mentioned this in our pre-podcast banter, but uh, in a weird turn of events, I'm actually living in Andrew Bellimer's former home right now. Uh, I'm crashing with another friend of ours in in New Haven. I don't know how much we've basically given away like our name, rank, and serial number at this point with all our personal. <laughs> I, I almost said the actual address. Ladies, <laughs> I just need the last four digits of your social and <laughs> <laughs> six nine six nine. But uh, yeah, so I'm living in your former home with another friend of ours in a in an apartment that's been like passed down from generation generation to generation of people in our neuroscience program. So Right. I mean at at this point it's been nearly ten years that that apartment has been occupied by somebody affiliated with the neuroscience program. Yeah, I think Lisa, Lisa and I figured out that it, we were coming up on a decade or so. All right. Well all fascinating chatter for everyone that doesn't know us personally. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and everyone who doesn't know us personally already knows all this stuff. So uh anyway. Uh but yes, very uh you know, very long history we've had together in, in this city. But now we're all over the eastern seaboard of the U.S. and Canada, but thankfully not spread across the world anymore. So that's good. Yes. Woohoo, time zones. Um, so shall we go ahead and start with some topics and uh, yeah, talk about them? That sounds great. That's, that's kind of what we do on a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Eventually. Andy, do you want to maybe do the honors with uh, starting with the first topic, being our, our guest of honor? Pick your favorite. Sure. I embarrass myself and stumble around a little bit. Uh, do you want to talk about toxoplasmosis? I'm always up for a little toxoplasmosis. <laughs> all right. I'm just bringing up all my reference pages so I can feel prepared. Yeah, so toxoplasmosis, uh, I feel like it's been in the news or sort of like the internet. Uh, it's passed around the internet yeah. a little bit lately. Uh, it's gone viral, one might say. <laughs> uh, except I guess it went bacterial. Damn it. Or no, or, or, protozoan. protozoan. <laughs> oh. <laughs> okay, so... That's, that's like a really slow-moving form of going viral. Yeah. That involves uh, flagella or something. Um, <laughs> so, 
So toxoplasmosis, or yeah, toxoplasma gondii, it's a protozoan that infects numerous hosts. Its primary host is the cat, and it actually reproduces in the cat digestive tract, but it, uh, it has secondary hosts like mice and humans. And what's really fascinating about it is that it has really interesting and strange and possibly sort of insight-lending effects on the nervous system. So, so mice that are infected with Toxoplasma gondii, they lose their fear of cat smells. So a mouse that is exposed to cat urine will normally run away or hide or, you know, exhibit fear responses. But a mouse that's been uh, infected with Toxoplasma is actually attracted to it. And in the wild, what this means is that an infected mouse will very soon be eaten by a cat, which will then let the organism get back into the cat digestive tract where it can reproduce, come out in the cat feces, and, you know, infect new things that more cats will then eat. And so this is, well, I guess you were going to go here. This is thought to be potentially related in humans to crazy cat lady syndrome, right? Right. So there's there are some papers showing that something somewhere between like a third and half of people might have some form of toxoplasma infection, uh, either from exposure to cats or exposure to undercooked meat. And it leads to cysts. Oh, uh, that's an unsettling pair of sources. That's, that's where what, it comes cats from. And undercooked meat. Yeah. Which, which of those are you more concerned about? Well, the fact that it's both, I guess. Oh, I guess if you're Alf, you, you would have a lot to worry about. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, <laughs> I was so going to make a joke about living in China, or not in China, in, in Asia, but uh, I feel like that would be politically incorrect, so I won't. <laughs> Good job. <laughs> the, the implied joke. I definitely was not going to joke about Asian people eating cats and dogs. So just that would hold be your hate mail. <laughs> yes, <laughs> that would be wrong. Uh, okay, sorry, so, go ahead. <laughs> so, what, so what happens is it can infect humans. And it forms cysts. And those cysts can form in muscles around the heart, but they can also form in the brain. And in mice, that leads to the loss of cat fear. But in humans, what they've shown is that people who are infected with toxoplasma are significantly more likely to be affected by schizophrenia, significantly more likely to commit suicide. And there was a reference at some point, I wasn't able to dig it up, showing... Uh, also, just more likely to get in things like traffic accidents. Yeah, I had heard oh, that really? too. I'm trying to run it down right now, but yeah, I saw that in an actual paper too, not like in. Yeah, yeah, no, it's it's somewhere real. I just I couldn't find it uh, in time. So it seems like there's a similar kind of behavioral deficit that occurs in humans. Now, um, is this so? In in mice, it seems to be that they it's probably a fairly specific disorder or, you know, effect for a reason, right? I mean, it makes a lot of sense that it would work out well for this parasite to uh, make mice lose their cat fear. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's, you know, very evolutionarily yeah. successful. Right. But in humans, is it just a matter of like, oh, there are these cysts and they cause kind of generalized, you know, brain damage of some sort that just sort of, you know, does damaging things to your mental function across the board or? I, it looks like from the paper, it looks like it's an immune response. It just like gets well, like an inflammatory response, and then you just have like 
Okay, yeah, maybe, chronic think, inflammation syndrome. Well, I think the cyst formation might be an immune thing. Okay. But the deficit persists after the parasite has been parasite's been cleared out for a while. Yeah, so that's the new paper that just came out. But yeah, there's a new paper in PLOS One uh, by Michael it's Ingram. Eisen. Oh. Yeah, by oh, yeah, Michael, Michael Eisen's lab. Uh, where He's they the Disney sh- guy, right? <laughs> <laughs> I know his previous work with mice. Yeah, you'll notice that mouse is not afraid of anything. <laughs> Except broomsticks. Hey, guys! Oh, look, it's a cat! <laughs> yeah, so, so in this paper, <laughs> okay, though, they anyway. show that... Uh, <laughs> they show that even after the parasite has been cleared, the lack of fear remains. That's kind of cool. Now, I mean... They must have done at some point, uh, I haven't read this paper, actually. I was going to leave the hard science to you. But they must have done dissections and, and looked at where these mouse brains are actually damaged or changed, right? I mean, I would assume, is it just a, that they infect or uh, cause damage to the amygdala or somewhere else? Yeah, so, so it looks like it's all over the board. So the cysts, I think, happen all over the place, but there's been some work from the Sapolsky lab showing that the cysts seem to be at least enriched in the amygdala. Okay. Which, for our listeners, is an important part of the brain for fear learning and things like that. Yeah, I think we talked about that. Uh, Did we talk about that in an episode you would have heard yet? We talked about the human amygdala with regard to the study where uh, people went into the scanner and they put snakes on a conveyor belt. And put the snakes closer or further to the people to make them have a fear response. Snakes on a plane. Yeah, that was a front runner for the title of the episode, <laughs> but then we went with something else, which I can't remember what it was now. So, I, so I guess my other question, again, that I don't know is: so, do these mice that are infected lose their fear to all kinds of other stuff too, or is it really, really specific to cat urine? So it's pretty or cats sp- in general. It's pretty specific. That's so weird. Yeah. Right. It's it's really kind of i mean it's sort of terrifying because as a as a human who owns cats you know you you would never really know whether you've been infected or not uh i mean there must be some way to well i guess there's maybe no easy way to test is there protozoas i think are hard to find right i mean you you won't have like random circulating dna you could pull out yeah i mean and i think in most people it's sort of you can do qpcr yeah but in most people i think it's a kind of a latent infection Right. That's just sort of hanging around, so I don't even know if there'd be an obvious uh, marker, circulating marker for it. Hmm. Yeah, it looks like the, the symptoms are, you know, you have a fever, sort of flu-like, you know, you feel crappy for a few days, and then you're back to normal. Well, it's a good thing none of us have it's ever, good thing had, none of us ever like had those yeah. symptoms. Yeah. <laughs> hey, I hang on, guys, can, I just know. have to go have a nice uh, big glass of cat urine. I'll be right back. I love that in this paper... They used bobcat urine. Yeah, I was. I thought that was kind of interesting as well. I don't know if there's a... Where does one obtain bobcat... Oh, leg Up Enterprises. So, I... people put it on their gardens to keep Wait, deer Leg away. Up Enterprises? <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's the best company name ever. <laughs> well, especially if you're a pea company. Well, exactly. I mean... Well, it wouldn't make any sense if they weren't a pea company. <laughs> <laughs> wait, wait. Their products? You're going to love this. Coyote urine? Fox urine, mountain lion urine, and wolf urine. They seem to have pulled the bobcat urine. Huh. Mm, interesting. I actually, my uh, my graduate advisor used to purchase coyote urine, uh, which he would, <laughs> well, which, which he would reconstitute and put on his garden in order to keep deer away. Ah, uh, yeah. 
We should add that Andy's advisor did nothing involving bobcats or urine. No, no, yeah. this is completely uh, well, extracurricular. That is a that is a thing, though. I think they sell that at, at somewhat normal person stores, right? Uh, yeah, know. this is all aimed at like hunters or yeah. farmers. So let me ask you this: How much would you pay for thirty-two ounces of premium mountain lion urine? Well, do I get the free carrying bag? I, I would definitely throw in a very airtight plastic bag. Why I pay nineteen ninety nine for that? What if I order in the next five minutes? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's it's way more expensive than that. How, wait, how much? How much urine do we get? Thirty two ounces. Uh, okay. So uh, what's that? Four pints of. Well, that's like one large. As anyone who's made a road trip, uh, a long road trip before, that's like one large Gatorade container. Yes. If you went on a road trip with a mountain lion, you could have this for free. Well, exactly. <laughs> like it's, uh, an hour after you stop at Wendy's, you just give the mountain lion the uh, Gatorade bottle, and there you go. <laughs> it's $59. Oh. Plus shipping, which I am not going to actually have this shipped to my house. Have you checked Amazon to see if they've got it for less? I really don't want... Oh, free shipping. Well, that's nice of them. <laughs> this is. I feel like the shipping has got to be pretty uh, expensive, too, because I'm guessing they don't just send that, you know, like, through the postal service. Uh, you'd be surprised. It's actually delivered to your house by Ben Gibbard. <laughs> um but Sorry. I'm Ching. That was the perfect Andy Bellamer joke, I think. I, for a moment, I was like, what does Death Cab for Cutie have anything to do with this conversation? <laughs> so, on eBay, not that this is all that relevant, but you can get a pint, which is uh, 16 ounces, for eight ninety five. So, that company sounds like a highly... Inflated... From a mountain lion? Oh, wait, sorry, that's Bob... Sorry, I was looking at Bobcat. Mountain lion urine... Followed by Maverick's urine, I believe, is, uh, let's see, eight ounces for $8. So uh, for $32 on eBay, you could get uh. Well, the picture is of wolf urine, so now I'm not sure, but they say it's mountain lion urine. Maybe this, maybe eBay is not the best place to go for your uh, There's probably a lot of second-hand urine. mountain lion urine. <laughs> Almost new. <laughs> A++. I mean, isn't it all second-hand? <laughs> <laughs> Fair point. There's mountain elk urine, which is much cheaper. Hmm. Do we do we have any further discussion? Sorry, we got a little aside of the actual or far from the actual research. But um, do we have any other actual stuff to talk about with the uh, the actual research article? Well, it's weird. It doesn't seem like there's a consensus on how it messes stuff up. So it might mess up calcium signaling. It might mess up dopamine signaling. Yeah. It messes up something badly. Yeah. (laughs) So clearly, stuff goes wrong with the amygdala. But yeah, it's. We're not. I don't think there's consensus about what's actually going on. So there are maybe more cysts there. There's another paper showing some uh, reduced dendrite extent and things like that in the amygdala. But yeah, there's no sort of knockout or uh, sort of slam dunk results about what's going on. Well, maybe the weirdest thing about this is, you know, like we were sort of alluding to, the fact that it implies that. You know, there is some very specific – I mean, we know that, like, mice are afraid of cats, right? Mm-hmm. But that clearly there is – and that this is innate, that this is inborn. Um, but clearly there's something very specific in the mouse brain that has either some kind of uh, – that has some kind of physiological marker of, like, this is where the cat fear resides, right? That has some kind of, um, 
you know, signaling molecule or something that this that this uh, protozoan can, you know, track down and and disrupt. You know, which is kind of weird, right? Because we we might be able to nail it down to the amygdala, but I'm assuming we don't know anything else about where this specific response is or how it is coded. Right, um, right. So I mean, it right. could be it could be a very specific anatomical pathway yeah. that uses you know some cell adhesion or cytokine uh, receptor or something like that yeah. in order to establish itself. And they don't think it's uh, it doesn't have to do with the olfactory system, right? It doesn't have to. No, do with... it's, it's it's something more central than that. But yeah. that's what that would have been my guess too. Is that it messes up the Right, their ability to even smell cat urine, right? But, the, but well, they're actually, attracted to it, right? Yeah. So you yeah, can't yeah. be, like, just flipping that off. That's weird. All right. Well, freaky. Yes, so everybody think about that the next time you're cleaning the cat box. I, I have one other, like, side question, which is, you know, there's the stereotype of the crazy cat lady that has, like, a million cats. And it does seem that whenever you see the news articles, it's usually a woman. Is there any research to suggest that women are more susceptible to this, to this or is it just that women might be more likely to get that first cat than men or anybody know anything about that? I don't think, I don't know of any research that actually okay. suggests that, but, but this is the reason why pregnant women aren't supposed to clean the cat box. Oh, right. Because toxoplasmosis is uh, very dangerous to developing fetuses and things like that. I would like to note that there is in fact a Wikipedia article entitled crazy cat lady syndrome, also known <laughs> as crazy cat person syndrome for the more politically correct. And, uh, yeah, it doesn't really say too much. Oh, apparently Crazy Cat Later is also a popular cultural reference to Simpsons character Eleanor Abernathy. Of course. But, uh, yeah, it doesn't go into any more details, at least in Wikipedia, about why, you know, why the stereotype is for ladies, other than I think ladies do tend to own cats more than men. If it somehow made you want to acquire more cats, that would also be an awesome evolutionary strategy on the part of the parasite. Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, in a sense, you know, that would be the same effect that you have in mice, right? An affinity for catness. Mm -hmm. And it is true, right, that, like, the true crazy cat lady is usually described, or crazy cat human, crazy cat individual, is usually <laughs> described as living in a house, you know, that not only has a bunch of cats, but that's in cat squalor, right? That there are so many cats and that, the you know, the litter boxes are all full and everything. So right, and I mean, maybe there is something about, you know, yeah, you, you lose the ability to or lose the desire to scoop out those cat boxes. Yeah. Although it's also comorbid with OCD, which seems like it would be counterproductive. Yeah. Don't know. By the way, it's in the cat urine syndrome, I'd just like to note that we are recording this episode on the same day as the Breaking Bad finale. So there's a minor, minor smell tie-in yes. because they always talk about how <laughs> uh, cooking meth smells like cat urine. It's true. I, I actually didn't know that until I stayed at a hotel in... Uh, it was a lousy hotel in the south. I was going to say, how many meth hotels have you stayed well, in? Well, there was a thing by the phone that said, if you smell like a strong cat urine odor, please call the front desk immediately. <laughs> and, you know, it didn't give any context. I was just like, okay. <laughs> Interesting. Uh, but you were staying in what they call the Crystal Palace, huh? Mm. <laughs> uh, are you guys Are you guys Breaking Bad watchers? I just started watching season two. So if you all spoil it for me, I will kill you. So I have not watched any of it. Oh. Do you plan to? Yeah, right after I watch uh, The Wire and the rest of Six Feet Under and The Sopranos. <laughs> oh my god, a Andy, Andy, go <laughs> watch The Wire right now. I know. I, I have know. to say, you have just named the other three things that I have never seen either. Oh, I can't believe either of you. <laughs>
But yeah, I, I highly recommend it. It's not even my type of show, Breaking Bad, but it's super good. And Krause, I think you will really enjoy season four so far is my favorite. Uh, I think you will. It really does make me want to learn more chemistry, which is, I think, not the intent of the show. But uh... <laughs> All I've read, uh, and this is not on our show notes, but, you know, speaking, uh, there is some science in Breaking Bad, but uh, there is a Mythbusters episode. And although, like, if you guys want, do you guys want to go into business? Because I have an idea for a show called Mythbusters Busters, where we, <laughs> <laughs> where we do the Mythbusters experiments better than they do them on Mythbusters. Because they always take, like, shortcuts and stuff right uh you know well yeah, it's a tv yeah. show i mean you know yeah but i mean it's sort of in, in the case of like breaking bad you know kind of you know to some extent like the shortcuts they take uh ruin it but at any rate it seems like despite the quality of the show dramatically speaking and the seeming emphasis on science that the the actual plausibility of most of the science is pretty low i thought actually i thought that they had or at least allegedly they'd done some of that intentionally because you don't really want a how to cook meth uh educational show on. yeah well uh, there's that but um but it's also things like you know there's the, a huge central premise is that the the meth that uh, walter white cooks is blue right which makes it look distinct and apparently like meth cooked that way would not be blue so oh. that's a little sad <laughs> speaking of meth uh have you guys seen someone published a synthesis of sudafed from methamphetamine <laughs> It's great. I'll see if I can find it. But the abstract says something like, pseudoephedrine is an effective but difficult to obtain uh, oral decongestant. (laughs) Uh, However, it can be readily synthesized from a methamphetamine, which you can find at any truck stop. And then, you know. (laughs) But you know what else is a highly effective decongestant? Meth? Yes. (laughs) Actually, is it? I think it is, actually. I mean, I I think I've read that it it dries you out like like a mofo, yeah. Yeah, I would guess so, right? Well, let's see. It must. I, I don't know how I'm gonna how we're gonna look this up because all the results are gonna just lead to. Can you uh, both see that? Yes. Actually, so that's ah, interesting nice. because Ritalin should have the same. Oh, wait, effect, this is the then, Journal right? of Apocryphal Chemistry. <laughs> and did you notice that the um, who the authors' names are? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's it's by O. Hi and I be hacking shit. So I think this it's also from, it's also from the Journal of Apocryphal Chemistry. Well, that's what I said. Yeah, so I think maybe I mean it's a funny thing, but I guess I think I, guess, I think the synthesis actually does work though. Well, that's that what I was somewhere. wondering. Is like how how far is this a joke? Is it non-functional or is it just a joke that anyone would bother to write this? I mean, I think it's probably a. Jeez, I've completely forgotten what little chemistry I knew. Well, if you're a chemist, I mean, I'm sure you could do the reaction in the other direction. I think the yield would be terrible, but, uh... <laughs> well, there's only one way to find out. <laughs> the lamest, most law-abiding version of Breaking Bad. <laughs> yeah. You dude, you want some Sudafed? <laughs> um, it would be just the, the inverse, Breaking Good. Breaking Good? <laughs> Wasn't there, I feel like there is some... I'm, I'm trying to think of this. There's some show or movie or something where... Someone's like power was turning like drugs into you know harmless stuff or weapons into flowers or something like that, and I can't think of what this might have been. It's a very vague memory. Sort of sounds like an early days of Comedy Central movie. Yeah, yeah. something like that, or like a kids' cartoon or something where like the hero's power was like you know de-drugifying people's drugs. I don't know, <laughs> like a very uh, very special episode of something. While we're in the that realm of stuff, not so much the meth, but the, um, 
the tax- Toxoplasma gondii. That's sort of related to the wasp that turns spiders into zombie construction workers. Oh yeah, that terrifies oh, me. Let's talk yeah. about that one. Which is just uh, there's a whole there's a whole series, I guess, of these examples in the animal kingdom. But it's it is freaky how much parasites have evolved to like brain control their hosts sometimes. So the particular article uh, it's linked in I think some previous show notes, but I'll give it to you guys right here. Uh, this is on mentalfloss.com. Uh, Meet the wasp that turns spiders into zombie construction workers is the headline. So the tropical wasp species is called, I'm going to mangle this, but Hymenoepimetius argyrifaga. argyrifaga. But there's like seven words in there that I could, seven naughty words in there that I could accidentally <laughs> say. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, it's a wasp species that has the host that is uh, in an orb spider, an orb web spider. But yeah, this uh, wasp. So I guess the wasp lays her egg. Well, she paralyzes the, the spider, stings it and paralyzes it, and then lays the egg on the spider's abdomen. The egg hatches. The larva remain attached to the spider, living on its abdomen and sucking out hemolymph, which is the closest thing uh, insects or spiders or whatever have to blood. And after a few weeks... The spider kind of just does its thing, but then the wasp larva is ready to make a cocoon, and they do that on the spider's web. But the spider's web, as naturally occurring, is not the best or most perfect place for a wasp cocoon. So, like, it's not strong enough, basically. So it basically injects a an unidentified chemical into the spider that alters it, its behavior, and it uh, essentially, you know, controls the spider's brain and... Uh, Instead of basically doing its normal web, it, you know, it uh, kind of does the first few steps of web building over and over again. So it ends up with just a little tiny, heavily reinforced uh, web right in the center. And that's strong enough then to uh, hold the, the wasp cocoon. And then, uh, you know, the larva eventually finishes eating the spider and flies away and goes on its merry way. That would be a terrifying sci-fi original if it weren't, well, just sci. Yeah. <laughs> Indeed. I, I love the par- that kind of parasite stuff. Ugh, that's why you work with bugs. <laughs> so, I mean, I can derail that into Drosophila stuff some more if you all oh, please. want to. So, we're, we're nothing if not derailable. Yeah, so so there there's a group of species of wasps called jewel wasps that parasitize Drosophila. And there are these little tiny wasps that will lay their uh, egg in the Drosophila larva, and the larva will go, you know, continue eating and doing its business, but as it's doing so, the wasp embryo will be eating the Drosophila larva from the from the inside out. So eventually the wasp... Oh, so, will... so you lay the egg basically when the larva is kind of soft and squishy enough that you can lay the egg actually inside the larva? Yep, it just shoots it right inside. Oh, that's terrifying also. <laughs> yeah, so, and then the larva pupates as normal, but then a wasp comes out instead of an adult fly. Ah! And it, it's so. This is actually the ins- one of the inspirations for the movie Alien. Oh yeah, you had mentioned this, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's cool. It's pretty much Alien, and there's there's a lot of interesting neuroscience around it. But one of the cool things that I put in the notes for today is that there's a few papers showing that because Drosophila spend most of their time eating rotting fruit, they're kind of immune to high alcohol levels. You know, they can consume a lot of alcohol without getting 
negative health effects. So larvae that are parasitized will actually consume more alcohol. Nice. In an attempt to sort of poison the wasp embryo without poisoning themselves. And adult flies that see a wasp will lay more of their eggs on alcohol-rich substrate in order to sort of medicate their offspring. Hmm. Huh. So it's like... Oh, that's really clever. Yeah, it's... it's. How the heck does that evolve? That's really cool. Well, I mean, you can... Well, so you can imagine that the, you know, the resistance of the Drosophila to alcohol is... Oh, that makes sense. You know, that's sort of evolutionarily advantageous on its own because they're eating rotting fruit. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, that all makes sense. The fruit flies do... Uh, I mean, they do kind of get drunk, you know, behavioral... You know, show some behavioral... Uh, evidence of drunkenness, right? Because there's lots of alcohol research in fruit flies where we, not we, meaning me, but like where people, you know, toss the fruit flies in a bottle with a, an alcohol so uh, cotton ball or something like that, right? And they do kind of stumble around just like humans oh, do. If I oh, yeah, they, correct, they do. I mean, correct, right? flies definitely... They get drunk. They but, get drunk. Yeah, but they... But it's not a toxin to them. Well, I mean, it's at some level it is, but, you know, well. the, the... But they have like a higher tolerance, right? At some level it is to us too, but... Well, yeah... <laughs> But, you know, the amount that's going to be in rotting fruit is not going to be especially toxic to them, presumably. Yeah. Well, that kind of segues into two other wait, articles. Wait, before we, we segue, had... here, check this out. I found pictures of the uh, the parasitizing wasp, what it does to the spider's webs. It's amazing. It's like a totally different web. It's not, like, you know, slightly different or anything. Oh, yeah, that is totally different. But it is kind of what they said, right, where, like, the center is strong and then there's, like, not much of an outer part, right? The weird thing is that it's, yeah, so if you take the larva off, it still does the web thing, but it doesn't die. Oh, I guess that makes sense, because it's hard, you mean, after the larva injects whatever that chemical is, but before it, it eats the spider. Yeah. Hmm. Well, there's like, there's like two, a week or two between the sticking the, the larva on and the brain takeover. Yeah. Man, that's wild. <laughs> that's so I just gave you sent you guys a link that was also in one of the old episode ideas. Ah, yeah, this was yeah. also linked on the Mental Floss article. It's just a quick thing. Uh, there was a great series of studies. This was, I think, back in the... Oh, this was actually back in the 40s. I thought this was back in the 70s, because it seemed like most of the these crazy studies happened in the 70s. But it's just a study where they basically gave spiders a bunch of different drugs and watched what they did to the spider webs. <laughs> so this article, which we will link in the show notes, has uh, spiders on... Marijuana. I love the one of caffeine. The, 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 the Wikipedia had the spiders on caffeine, which I think it still does in the caffeine article. That used to be my desktop for a while uh, on my computer right next to the you know 11 Starbucks cups and 26 Diet Coke bottles that were usually on my desk. <laughs> but yeah, basically all the drugs make spiders make kind of crazy, sparse, like disorganized webs, but to varying degrees and with varying amounts of remaining organization except for lsd yeah, where LS it has like a perfectly lsd is the most amazingly perfect web ever yeah i guess lsd it makes all of the what do you call it the radial uh segments but it doesn't make any of the circular ones so yeah it's kind of perfect in a way but wait so andy i have a question about this don't most of the neurotransmitters don't they do different things in insects or arthropods than in mammals well i mean like isn't glutamate yeah isn't glutamate inhibitory in Something that's not a mammal. So, in uh, in nematodes, glutamate can be inhibitory. So there are glutamate gated chloride channels that are targets for like pesticides and things like that. 
And there's octanol too, right? Instead of dopamine? There's octopamine. Octopamine. Yeah, that replaces norepinephrine. How do Andy, how does that work? Because I mean in humans, if I if I recall my lower level neurobiology, I mean you can have things like metabotropic glutamate receptors, which have an inhibitory effect, but are you talking about a more direct inhibitory effect? Yeah, so these are like glutamate gated chloride channels. So these are like basically like GABA A receptors okay. gated by glutamate. Right. Oh interesting. Okay. In Drosophila, though, and presumably in other arthropods, but I'm not sure, glutamate is actually the the neurotransmitter at the neuromuscular junction. Instead of uh, acetylcholine? Yeah, yeah. So acetylcholine is mostly in the uh, central nervous system. Oh, God, I totally Canadianized that pronunciation. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you, you did. <laughs> Bonjour. Bonjour. <laughs> so to translate that into English for the non-neuroscientists, I mean, these are all just names of various chemicals that are used as neurotransmitters, but... I don't know how much we really want to explain about it, but I guess the, the the basic point is that although like in say mammals, you know, it's pretty well conserved what certain neurotransmitters do, there's nothing intrinsic, I guess, about like glutamate, for example, that makes it you know what I mean, like it does not directly excite the neuron. It's just the key to a lock that normally lets in uh ions into the cell that make the cell more excited, right? But like you could just as easily imagine changing that molecular lock so that, you know, it opens up uh, a channel that lets out voltage, essentially. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, that's that's a very good explanation of it. I'm trying I'm trying to, like... It's very hard to, like, simplify something without making it totally inaccurate. So I have but, a follow-up question here. Why is NASA getting spiders high? <laughs> that's a good question. I don't know. I, I, yeah, I don't know why they did like, those Like, are they planning a, a huge fleet of spider knots? Well, yes. I'm, I'm just going to say yes <laughs> on that one. I mean, I assume that Russia was sending a spider to the moon or that, you know, Russia sent a fly to the moon. So we had to send something with two more legs to the moon to kind of, <laughs> you know, keep pace with them. But I was going to say, you know, there was that weird era in science where it did seem like it was just like, let's give all kinds of drugs to things and see what happens, which leads me to suggest that Krauss tell the story of our favorite paper ever. Tosco? <laughs> and it's such you know a sad this, story do you know this paper too i think i do know this paper but i'll let Krauss <laughs> tell the story so i believe the paper is from the 60s and uh hold on let me see if i can find it yes all right so it's from 1962 <laughs> and uh it, it was the 60s and they had an elephant and they had some lsd and some fine <laughs> folks from the university of oklahoma wondered what the heck would happen if you gave an elephant lsd well, and there was a sort of – this sounds like the kind so of So there is an actual justification for it in their well, life. kind of. It, it sounds like the kind of hypothesis we would – Yeah, it sounds like a hypothesis that you would expect from a podcast, per, perhaps not an, an IH-funded grant. Well, if, if you were like – if what you really wanted to do was give an elephant a bunch of LSD, but you needed some kind of cooked-up explanation that, you know, you're hoping nobody, nobody checked too closely. Yeah. So, so wild elephants uh, – wild male elephants go through this thing called musth. I guess it's M-U-S-T-H. And in this, you know, 60s-tastic paper, they refer to it as a form of madness or derangement. And it basically, like, once or twice a year, the elephant just goes nuts. He gets super aggressive. Uh, there's some changes in sort of the way its eyes look. And then it runs berserk for, like, about two weeks, where it tramples stuff. It's basically elephant ponfar, right? What's ponfar? I think I got that right. I'm just enough of a nerd to know that word and not enough of a nerd to know like that Like the berserkers? 
No, it's uh, it's it's what Vulcans. It's like Vulcan mating season, but they. Oh, like, I uh, thought it was some Star Trek thing. Yeah, they go like kind of totally insane uh, if they don't mate. Actually, you will be no doubt surprised to learn that the Wikipedia article on Ponfar links to the elephant must. <laughs> oh, really? Yes. That's awesome. <laughs> okay, I, I feel like slightly less of a dork <laughs> for suggesting that then. I'm actually kind of impressed. This is one of the shortest Wikipedia articles on a Star Wars, pheno- a Star Trek phenomenon that I've ever seen. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Because usually if you look up like Dentooine on Wikipedia, you get an article that's like longer than World War II. Um, yes. So these guys, I guess we should name them to give them credit. Oh, wait, their names aren't even on this. We're wondering what they could give an elephant to change its personality in a sort of weird, unpredictable way uh, to make a model for this musp. And so they settled on giving an elephant, which they had gotten from a zoo somehow, <laughs> some LSD. But uh, a large chunk of the paper is where they try to figure out how much LSD one should give an elephant. So they start with the human dose, and then they argue that we should scale it up for the elephant, but then we should scale it up more because... Uh, because that's how much we have lying around. <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. Like, the dose for the mouse is different from the dose for the monkey, even if you just go, if you just go by weight, so maybe we should scale it up some more. So, eventually, it seems like they're just like, this is about all we have. We didn't even bother weighing the elephant. We estimate that it weighs between 6,500 uh, to 7,000 pounds. And uh, so then they give the... So they give him this LSD. And sadly, he has a seizure. He goes sort of crazy. He starts trumpeting and running around his cage. Probably because he's tripping, like, madly. Um, <laughs> yeah. But then he collapsed and died. Sad. So it's a very sad paper. But it somehow got into science, which tells you everything you need to know about 1962. Yeah. <laughs> Indeed. Rad, man. We all did a lot of crazy things back in the 60s. But it's, it's, it, yeah, it's a really funny article up until the point where the elephant dies, and then it's kind of sad. Well, the whole thing is just bizarre because, like, there's basically no science in here other than you should not give a massive amount of LSD to an elephant. Right. Unless, as they point out, you wanted to kill the elephant. Because, you know. Because <laughs> <laughs> that's clearly the most efficient way. Uh, yeah, this it sounds very much when you read it like, uh, I actually am facing this kind of thing right now. Not, <laughs> um, not what? Not <laughs> what? <laughs> like, you know, you often have, when you're writing up a paper, you have these minor quandaries. Like, I have a little method section where I need to write, like, one thing we got dinged on in reviews for a previous submission of this thing was, why did you choose this particular number to, like, look at this... Uh, whatever it doesn't matter but why'd you choose this particular number and the answer of course is like well we just kind of guessed that that might be about right and then we checked to see if it worked and it did so we you know we didn't bother to do it with any other numbers (laughs) hey guess and check was totally valid in in elementary school well i mean this is the, the case in this case is we were trying to do some analysis and the question was like how much of the data like do we include you know do we include like this many data points or this many data points? And it doesn't really matter exactly how many you choose, but you need to choose a number to work with. But you, so you try to come up with the explanation that makes it sound the least like you just pulled it out of your butt, because uh, that does not usually fly well in, uh, you know, in most journal articles. But this definitely sounds like that kind of thing where they're like, "All right, what we really did was just take all the elephant we had and all the LSD, LSD. we had." <laughs> and oh wait, them. I just. I just noticed something even more ridiculous. Yes. As a control, they shot him with penicillin first. And I have no idea about elephant physiology. But in other animals, penicillin, like large doses of penicillin, actually cause seizures. Oh, really? I'm not sure what Yeah, it, it's, a, it's a good model for 
uh, like status epilepticus. So they may have absolutely done nothing at all involving LSD. I, Interesting. I don't even know what they would be controlling for exactly there. I think it was more to see if they could give an elephant a shot without dying. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I guess it was just to see the startle response from, you know, getting shot in the butt with a what I assume is a massive dart. Yeah, you would assume. Oh yeah, okay. The procedures in, uh, employed on the control day were devised to document the behavior with which Tusco's response to the next day's experimental stimulus could be compared. <laughs> I also like that they call him Tusco throughout the paper. Right? Normally it's like yeah. Yeah, that's... the animal. <laughs> Subject T or something like that. <laughs> well, let's pour one out for Tusco, but uh, yeah, now it's now it's all sad. Sorry. Uh, yeah. All right, let's I talk about the, let's one. talk about the awesome gear bug because the awesome oh. gear bug is awesome. Yeah. So we have kind of two bran- well two things that we plan to talk about anyway, and they both sort of branch off what we've been talking about already: the gear bug and then the alcohol, uh, the beer syndrome, which both relate to recent topics. So. Uh, all right. Uh, let's do the gear bug first because I have less to say about that. Yep. So I found this thing in Science, which I alluded to on Facebook a while ago. About an insect that has a... Well, it has a gear. I guess that's basically the whole story. (laughs) (laughs) So many insects jump to get away from predators, and they can often jump, like, sort of amazingly fast. Uh, I think this one can pull 400 Gs, jumping out of its uh, burrow, I guess. Yeah. And so to get this ridiculous force, right, it has to synchronize all its legs. And uh, so this uh, plant hopper, the flightless Uh, plant hopper, Insus... Yeah. Isus? Isus, I guess. Isus? Or, yeah. yeah, I don't know. I-S-S-U-S. It, it has basically what look exactly like a set of gears around two of their hind legs. And, uh, you know, they, they, it works just like, uh, like the cocking mechanism of a gun or something, where the gears engage and they help it, like, uh, launch at the same, same direction and exactly the same time so that they can fly far, far away from whatever's trying to eat them. And the really cool thing is that this only shows up in the nymphs, right? So if the adult yeah. animal was dependent huh. on having these gears, you know, as soon as the gear broke, it became chipped because it's part of the shell. Uh, it would be fodder for whatever eats these guys. Uh, but since it's only on the nymphs, you know, it just uses this special adaptation to last uh, until it can reach adulthood. And presumably it has, you know, like more smarts or something like that to keep it from being devoured as a grown-up. Yes. So the <laughs> the science article says in a... Uh, very technical terms. The animal is then bigger and stronger and doesn't need the gear. <laughs> so I thought that was awesome. We'll, we'll link to a picture, but it looks exactly like you'd imagine like a, a yeah, clockwork. Yeah, it looks like a Cogsley's cog right there. Yeah, I mean, it's like this weird steampunk bug. Yes, that's that's totally <laughs> it. <laughs> so... Will Smith driving around a giant mutinized spider is going to come after it. And then when it's in it all, it's like, yeah, I was into that for a while when I was a larva. Or a nymph, <laughs> I guess. So, I actually saw someone yesterday walking down the street in full weird steampunk regalia. Welding goggles, a cowboy hat. I think he had a kilt on also. And like a bat belt, but made of beat up leather. <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. I don't have... uh, it's Montreal. It's awesome. <laughs> Has anyone, someone must have done Steampunk Batman at some point, right? Because that would actually be pretty awesome. I Wasn't Batman kind of a steampunk? Like, he doesn't have any special powers or anything. He just has True. stuff. I'm, I'm sure that must exist on the internet somewhere. Well, to the internet I go. <laughs> and Johnson was never heard from again. So, I'll say something while, while Matt Johnson is Googling Steampunk Batman. Um, <laughs> well, <laughs> one thing that's really interesting about this to me 
is that, I mean, the nervous system is usually really good at synchronizing things. So I think it's really interesting that there has to be this, like, physical, mechanical mechanism for synchronization. Like, why can't the nervous system do it? Yeah, I don't know. Do bugs have neurogenesis throughout their life? Or are they, like, like mammals where it's, you know, you get some neurons and that's about it? Well, so going from, like, a nymph to an adult stage, there's probably massive... I, I, I'm talking totally out of my butt, but there's presumably massive reorganization of the nervous system. That's true. I mean, they totally yeah. change shape, right? Yeah, yeah. So I bet lots of things get reorganized. The sinking is, uh, they said, 30, mil- 30 millionths of a second. So that's, you know, you're not going to get that with neurons. Huh. Yeah. That's, like, that's ridiculously fast. Right, yeah. No, that's, I'm surprised you can get that with shell gears. With machinery? With mechanical yeah. gears, yeah. Well, what? How big are they? I mean, uh, I, let's see. What's the scale? The gears bar on look this? like they're about twenty microns long. Oh yeah, the like scale bar is twenty microns. Yeah, so and that's like about one gear. And how quickly do they go around? Uh, I don't know, but it said the bug can pull four hundred g's. There's a high speed video, but it doesn't have like a time. Yeah, I just wonder how many on. RPMs they get up to. But I guess you could work that out based on the size of them. And yeah, you can. And and the thirty milliseconds thing, I mean the thirty uh, microseconds thing. The other weird thing is, like, I don't know why it would really have to be synchronized because you just want to get the the bug just wants to get the heck out of there, right? So really, like, hopping in any direction would be fine. Yeah, I mean, and if you look at Drosophila escape jumping responses in like really high resolution video, it's kind of the craziest jump ever. Like they jump and yeah, sort don't of. They just go like they just go for it, right? Yeah, they just jump and they kind of tumble and then have to reorient and fly away. Like the initial jump is like kind of disorganized looking at first glance. Hmm. Have we talked about my other favorite escape behavior, the tiger moth? No. Oh, the tiger moth is awesome. Is that the that's not that's not the one from Silence of the Lambs, is it? No, that's no, the no. death's head moth. Yeah, yeah. Like that. Yeah. So the tiger moth is a uh, a moth. And it's eaten by bats. So normally the bats, they make a chirp, then they listen for the echo returns. And they can use that to locate the, the bug in, in space. So the moth, moths have two sort of cool behaviors. A lot of moths, as soon as they hear an ultrasonic chirp, they just start tumbling. So they end up in this sort of chaotic like tumbling pattern that the bat can't predict, so they escape that way. But the tiger moth has this even awesomer adaptation. So it hears a chirp, and then it, it makes a sound that sounds like an echo return off of, or at least to the bat, uh, by rubbing like a scraper against its carapace, I guess. So it makes a false echo return and the bat thinks that the tiger moth has gone somewhere else. Crazy. That's awesome. I have a video of it somewhere. It's, it's amazing. So yeah, this is the whole, I think it's a nature paper where they basically have the tiger moth, uh, they have a regular tiger moth and one with the scraper removed and the, the regular one or the, yeah, the, Scraper removed one, which is like a regular moth. You know, the bat chirps, and then it flies right at it, and it eats it. And the other one, the bat goes off in some, like, random direction and lunges at something that's not there. That's cool. Oh, man. Tiger moth is apparently a kind of plane, too. (laughs) Tiger moth chans. All right, here. Check this out. It's only 10 seconds long. We can put the sound in here, too, which would be cool. Yeah, we can get... Uh, We can probably get videos. So if you listen to it, that, like, rasping noise is uh, is the bat. Sorry, is the moth making uh, the fake echo returns? That is pretty cool. Indeed. Only one man would dare give me the raspberry. (laughs) (laughs) 
little space balls for you. <laughs> I was actually trying to remember how the crazy Ivan thing worked in, uh, to see if there was a reference to uh, that. It always goes clockwise at the top of the hour. Yeah, I couldn't. Re- I remember it had something to do with sonar and stuff, but I couldn't remember, you know, what exactly the deal was with that, and if that was relevant to make a reference to. But I think the spaceballs reference works just as well. Yeah, spaceballs is a good one. Uh, you can never go wrong with spaceballs. Apparently, the crazy Ivan is a real thing. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Related. So actually, I had another actual question about the gears thing. While we're kind of still on that, if we just wanted to play like complete, you know, imagination land, you know, could you imagine? something like this gear system evolving as a mechanism for information transmission too, I guess it wouldn't be really as reusable as, as neurons. Right. Cause like it's sort of crazy that it can get better synchrony and better timing than a neuron. But I presume the disadvantage is it's probably tires out more easily or, you know, yeah, I, well, I don't know that it tires out, but it's very fragile, right? Yeah. And there's, there's no real space for plasticity, right? I suppose yeah. that's true also. Yeah. Unless you had a much more complex guess... system of gears and cogs and things. Yeah. I mean, a hair cell is sort of a mechanical link, you know? So they have a little hair, and you yank on the hair, and it opens up ion channels and does stuff to the cell. Yeah. But yeah, gears would be neat. I was just trying to get, I think, like a sort of steampunk, uh, <laughs> like Babbage's computation engine thing going in the brain, I suppose. But yeah, I suppose there are a lot of reasons you couldn't use it for much, you know, like biologically, it's not a very useful thing, except in very specialized cases. Somewhere there is an insect with punch card wings. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, so speaking of which, I, I googled steampunk Batman, and uh, <laughs> apparently there was a whole comic that uh, in 1989 called Gotham by Gaslight, which is kind of a steampunk uh, oh, Batman okay, story. Okay. Uh, I but feel like also, I've heard, th- heard of that, actually. Yeah, I mean, it was, it's popular enough to have its own Wikipedia article. And of course, if you Google... <laughs> Way to narrow it down there. <laughs> yeah. Um, and of course, if you uh, Google steampunk... Uh, Batman cosplay, you get lots and lots of oh, images because, of course, goodness. <laughs> uh, there's nothing new under the sun. I just sent you guys a link to uh, one steampunk Batman with like the whole cast of characters. But uh, yeah, that's actually kind of cool. It's basically all the regular characters plus goggles. I was actually, <laughs> yeah, it needs more gratuitous gears. Yeah, and I feel, feel like Batman would actually be better as Bruce Wayne because then you could have like kind of a yeah, uh, like like a like, an old like a better suit. hat and such. Yeah. I mean, Batman doesn't really need goggles to cover up his, you know, only distinctive feature, the bat mask. Uh, so, so relative- um, also, wait, to bring it all back around? Yep. Did you see the plot of Gotham by Gaslight? I didn't look too closely. He goes to see Freud to tell him about a dream. Weird. Okay, so there's this some is, weird set in like the psychology tie in. Yeah. Crazy. Huh. So, am I imagining, I seem to recall a couple of years ago. And now all I can find is, is this is this Gearbug article. But I seem to recall there was, like, great debate about why wheels, like, not so much gears, but wheels could not evolve as, you know, like, as a biological means of travel as opposed to legs. Hmm. And then I thought they had discovered an insect or some kind of animal that had an actual wheel that it got around with. Does anybody? I don't anybody... recall that. Okay. Not ringing any bells. The thing is, like, a partial wheel wouldn't be very useful, right? Well, that's a tricky argument to make, Mr. You could never evolve an eye. 
<laughs> but you can't. But but like an an Ocella is useful by its Ocellum is useful by itself, right? It tells you which way is up or which way the sun is. Well, I mean, a partial wheel would be useful if like it was like a whole animal tumbling kind of mechanism. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, but like the axle part would be. I also, how would you like grow an axle? I guess you could. Yeah, I mean, I think you could. I you know, I, I'm sure nature could find a way. There's actually a LiveScience.com article called Why Don't Any Animals Have Wheels that kind of recapitulates this, along with a terribly cute little picture of a turtle with wheels, which oh, I suspect great. is photoshopped and not biological. Because <laughs> uh, you'd probably not evolve wheels with tires. I mean, don't like hedgehogs and uh, armadillos like roll around? That's sort of like a wheel. Yeah. So there's a Wikipedia article called Rotating Locomotion in Living Systems. Hey, that has all my examples. Damn it. <laughs> oh, okay. Oh, well. tumbleweeds, which I received. Uh, that's right. <laughs> yeah, but I guess that doesn't really count. But there is a sort of interesting question of, you know, can we find examples of all these simple machines and things like that uh, Yeah. in animal behavior? I mean, the other thing is, I would imagine we know very little about most bugs. So it could be a bug with wheels. Well, I don't know if you guys ever have this, but, you know, certainly in Malaysia, where weird bugs abounded, I would be walking around being like, hey, I've never seen a bug like that before. You know, and it's not like there were a lot of them. I would just see one, and then I would go, you know, I never bothered to look them up to see if they were real bugs. But I I, I wonder how much of the entomologist's lifestyle is just, like, how, how do you go around discovering new bug species? Do you just walk around the jungle for a while and say, wait, I haven't seen that one before? I think, basically. I, don't they set up giant nets? And just kind of... I guess... Oh, yeah. Collect all the bugs that fall out. I think they found the new nematode, like, within the last decade in Central Park. Which, I mean, you know... Oh, yeah, yeah. ...picked over by now. Nematodes, you just dig up some soil and stick it on a Petri dish and wait for them to crawl out, basically. Can't wait (laughs) to have the... The Krausellum. Boy, there's... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. There's a Krausellum in your pants joke somewhere in there. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) This is the smallest worm we've ever discovered. Let's name it after Krauss. (laughs) All right. Well, I think from the little bit I have seen, yeah, there's no, like, exact wheel in nature, but there are a lot of wheel-like things. Maybe I'll read this article closer and we can link it in the show notes. And I might have just been imagining that that animal with wheels. So we talk about... Yeah, do we want to go from the, um, the gear bug to... The beer story. We have actually a couple of beer-related stories that sort of relate to the fruit flies and alcohol. Do we want to do that one? Sure. Yeah, we can talk about beer gut. I like that story. Yeah, you talk about beer gut. I'm going to – and then I want to look up the story I have the rant about, but it's a quick rant. All right. Take it away, Andy. Okay, so the beer gut thing, it's – I guess it's something that's been known for a while, but it's made the news lately because it all comes from this uh, older gentleman in Texas whose wife apparently thought that he was – you know, going around getting drunk all the time. And his... Well, because he was drunk well, all the because time. He, yes, he, he was actually drunk all the time, so she thought that he was going out drinking all the time. And he said, well, I'm, I'm not, and in fact, I just, I just get drunk all the time, no matter what. So they went to the hospital, they locked him in a room, and did not let him have anything to drink, and then, you know, hours later, they discovered him uh, being, you know, many times over the legal limit uh, for blood alcohol content. Yeah. Uh, with no explanation, and uh, what it ends up being after a gastroenterologist does some more looking at him is that his stomach is full of 
uh, Saccharomyces cerevisiae, uh, which is your standard yeast. Uh, so whatever he eats, especially if it has sugar in it, uh, is just rapidly converted into alcohol by the yeast and yeast metabolism, which then gets absorbed into his bloodstream and he gets drunk. Which is kind of crazy, right? Because, uh, you know, that's a fair bit of yeast you must have in your stomach for it to work that way. Well, this is why it was weird to me, because, you know, when you brew stuff, it's actually a pain to get it in the right temperature and pH and like sugar concentration to keep the yeast alive and happy. So, like, they really want to sit at, like, 72 or, yeah, around 72 degrees. Mm-hmm. So body yeah. temperature is, like, way too hot for yeast. Although, I mean, the stomach is technically outside of the body. But isn't it at body temperature? I mean, it should it's be... probably pretty close. So that also must mean the stomach is, like, uh, doesn't have any oxygen? Well, so this is the thing. I mean, so they call this auto-brewery syndrome, and it, I, the way I th- I'm thinking about it, it must be that you have something weird going on with your GI tract that leads to your guts being more conducive to yeast growth. Oh, yeah. So actually, I read the case report, and he had surgery, and they they blasted him with antibiotics afterwards because of a suspected infection. Oh. You mean in, in addition to the fungal infection? they, they suspected- No, no, like he had some unrelated... Uh, he had a broken foot. Okay. So, so, so as part of his treatment for the broken foot, they blasted him with antibiotics. Right, so that kills off like everything in your gut if you take enough of them. Uh, oh, you mean before they before he got the syndrome, they had blasted him with antibiotics? Yeah, like uh, okay. well, so this case report is from 2010, and his broken foot was in 2004. Wait, this is a different guy? Because this no, paper... same guy. The paper's from 2013, but it only recently got. Oh, I see. I, I see. It occurred in 2010. Got it. So presumably, well, he initially came to the doctor in 2010. Yeah. So presumably the antibiotics killed off the regular stuff and left him open for yeah. yeast infestation. Which is, I think, normally how you get like a yeast infection elsewhere, right? You're on really strong antibiotics, everything dies, and then... Yeah, yeah. But still, you've got to imagine that maybe it's a yeast strain that is somehow has mutations that make it more uh, healthy in the stomach or something Yeah, so like I that. actually yeah. read... Uh, it wasn't in the case report... But one of the news articles said that he was a home brewer, so he would have been around <laughs> a lot of yeast. Uh, okay. Was it actually in his stomach that this was found, or is it like in the small intestines that uh, that these uh, yeast set up shop? So it's actually in this. I think in this case, it was actually in his stomach. Yeah. I, I mean, are the can the yeast survive in a? I guess they can survive in a something with that uh, low of a pH. I don't know. What is the stomach pH? It's like five. I thought it was lower than that. I thought it was highly acidic, but maybe not. Uh, the pH of gastric acid itself is 1.5 to 3.5, but well, according to about.com, which I'm pretty sure is, you know, an accurate uh, yes. indicator, the pH varies from one or two up to four or five. Hmm. Uh, so the pH of beer is in the neighborhood of four. So that's not like totally out of the realm of possibility. Okay. Yeah. And I think that, uh, uh, this is going to reveal my, not knowing too much about yeast biology, but uh, don't yeast exist in some sort of state where they're relatively inert and they can't really be affected? I think they can. I think like a can't they spore up? You know, so well you yeah. I mean, you can buy. I mean, well, when you buy yeast, right, Kraus? Like, you just get a big old chunk of yeast, and it it has a pretty good shelf life, right? So no, the active dry yeast they do a bunch of stuff too to keep it like oh, relatively really? stable. Okay. 
If you buy fresh yeast, it's only good for like, well, like a couple months. Oh, that's a long time for something with no substrate to subsist on. Or does it have like some kind of yeast? They might pack it in like maltodextrin or something. So it's got a little bit to eat. Okay. So the other weird thing in the case report was that they, uh, a long time ago, they took blood from 1,500 people in the UAE. Where, where drinking is, you know, like, super illegal. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Well, I think it's actually legal there, for, but maybe not for Muslims. Yeah, maybe. Well, it says zero tolerance in the article. Oh, uh, maybe. Okay, sorry. But so the average... Or sorry, the maximum blood alcohol content in their just, like, pooled sample was, like, a .03. So apparently there's, like, a fair amount of this going on. Yeah, I could see that. But I think this guy's was in his stomach, but you can also get it in your uh, duodenum. Yeah, I mean, you can get these infections. I, I was looking this up fairly recently, uh, independent of this. I mean, you can get these infections throughout the digestive tract, but they are uh, any sort of fungal infection in the digestive tract is relatively uncommon. If you, if you, usually you get it in your lungs if you like inhale any sort of fungus that's in the atmosphere. But it can set up shop kind of anywhere, just depending on how lucky you get and how much you're exposed to, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. So, beer gut man. So we have two kind of articles that somewhat leap off of this. Oh, I have one more related awesome thing. Oh, what's what's your awesome thing? So we have a large number of, like, intramural sports teams. You mean at your university? Yeah, yeah. Okay. And, <laughs> so a lot of them have, like, these standard neuro names. You know, there's, like, field or, yeah, field potential. That, that was our neuroscience <laughs> uh Oh, no, sorry, it's not field potential. It's action potential here, which is dumb, because field potential is so much better. Yeah, the field (laughs) potentials made sense. But someone has a team called Saccharomyces, which made me really happy. Oh, Saccharomyces. That's kind of great. I know, I wish I had thought of that. So so the two linkages off of this, one thing is that this man had in his stomach Heliobacter pylori, which we were talking about earlier, which actually I was thinking that that's just a cool story to tell uh, if people if people listening to the podcast don't know the famous story about that bacteria. And it also links to this Price of Beer article that I want to rant about for like 30 seconds. But uh, one of you guys want to maybe tell the, the history of Heliobacter pylori? Is it, do you guys say Heliobacter pylori? Is that the commonly accepted pronunciation? That sounds right. Yeah, I think or so. Pylori. Pylori. Anybody want to tell that story real quick while I try to refresh my seawater article? Well, the actual uh, story is uh, about stomach ulcers, right? Yeah, but I was going to say, like, well, okay. I, I didn't know if we wanted to tell the Nobel Prize story, because I think it's yeah, kind yeah. of an awesome, like, moment in science kind of, uh, kind of bit. Yeah, so, so the conventional wisdom has always been that stomach ulcers are from stress or from eating, like, you know, eating badly, right? You're eating, like, too much caffeine or something that's too acidic. Conventional wisdom as of what, like 15 years ago and earlier? Yeah. Or no, how long yeah. ago was this? 10 years ago and earlier? I can't remember how long ago but, this I was. But I mean, even now, people still... Yeah, even now. Well, yes. My mom still people still like, oh, you'll give me an ulcer. There's so much, too much stress. Right. So uh, for the longest time... Oh, I can't remember the guy's name, which makes this a less good story. It was, it was two or three people, right, that had this theory? Yeah, it's two Australian guys, uh, Barry Marshall and Robin Warren. Okay. And they were convinced, convinced, convinced that it was caused by a uh, bacterial agent in the stomach. And that it wasn't just from stress or some other, like, sort of psychological cause. Irritation or, yeah. So, uh, you know, they were treated pretty shabbily, like they were sort of crackpots. And uh, eventually they did an experiment where one of them cultured, like, a big vat of Heliobacter and drank it. And then immediately came down with stomach ulcers. 
and then took some antibiotics, cleaned it right up. And so in 2005, they won the Nobel Prize for that, which was kind of awesome because, you know, for years of being treated like sort of a crackpot, it's like, eh, you know. Yeah, I mean, that's pretty badass, I think. <laughs> yeah, I, the, sort of the idea of self-experimentation is kind of awesome. You know that there's a similar one for uh, erectile dysfunction, yeah? Oh, this oh, is a whole podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I think you were the one that first shared that story with me, Andy. I, I, I yeah, I there's. Correctly. It's actually it's in a peer-reviewed journal as like a sort of historical editorial kind of thing. If if we want to get sidetracked, I can tell the story. Uh, yeah, tell the story. Yeah, I'm tell the story. About, it's so uh, good. Deep sea water. Okay, so I can't remember the author. Who, I can't remember any of the names because I don't have this article. We can dig it up later. So this guy. So. Is well known that lots of heart medications have this interesting side effect of causing erections uh, or prolonging erections. And for a long time, this was just a nuisance side effect. But one doctor said, no, this is this is marketable. And in fact, we can come up with a safe dose that's not going to mess up people's hearts, but will produce an erection. Uh, so this guy. Uh, so it's the famous. Giles oh, you find him. Yeah. I'm sorry. How I would you say this? It's Giles uh, wait, Brindley. See. Giles Brindley. Okay. Yeah, Brindley. Yep. Who in 1983 gave a lecture that would change the field forever. And you know where the lecture was held? No. Vegas. <laughs> <laughs> Bring me the finest hookers in all the land. Yes. Anyways, sorry, Andy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so what he does is. He spends some time injecting himself with all these medications to sort of come up with a reasonable dose to produce an erection. And then he goes to a conference, and as sort of the keynote, or I don't know if it was a keynote, but as this sort of big fancy lecture, like it was described as like, you know, doctors and their wives were there, he uh, <laughs> demonstrates the, infect the effectiveness of these medications in producing an erection. Uh, and actually, you know, steps out from behind the podium and is wearing, like, sort of track pants, which he uh, he says something like, you know, there's nothing less sexually arousing than the possibility of having to give a talk in front of a lot of people, so I decided to dose myself before giving this talk, so I can't possibly <laughs> be aroused at this moment. And he sort of, like, pulls the pants back against his crotch to demonstrate that, you know, he's, in fact, has an erection. <laughs> and I just found some quotes from the audience, from I people mean, who are in the audience. Proceed. Brindley dropped his pants before the audience, sporting a very respectable erection. <laughs> Professor Alvaro Morales, Queen's University, Kingston, Ontario. I had been wondering why Brindley was wearing sweatpants says Dr. Arnold Melman, Chief of Urology at New York's Albert Einstein College of Medicine, who was there. Suddenly, I knew. It was a very big penis, and he just walked around the stage showing it off. And as Dr. Erwin Goldstein, a BU neurologist who was present for Dr. Brindley's presentation, describes it, he just walked down the aisle and let, and let us touch it. People couldn't believe it wasn't an implant. <laughs> you know, so I, I hope to someday live to the point where my erections can be described as... Uh, respectable. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
So the story I read about this, it sort of implied people were like literally running screaming from the room. But I, <laughs> I mean, wouldn't you if you were at SFN and someone just like, I dropped well, trout? It's it's probably about fifty fifty, right? Like some of the you know significant others were probably put off by it, but I assume that some of the scientists were actually like, hey, that's actually pretty impressive, <laughs> or vice versa. I mean, they were a bunch of biologists, so you yeah, know, yeah. Presumably, this is nothing they'd never seen before. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, they were all urologists. They were probably like, okay, yeah, rock out, sir. Apparently he tried 33 drugs injected into his own penis before he got this to work. Yeah. He's got a Wikipedia article, Giles Brennan. That's dedication. That is dedication, yeah. sir. <laughs> but somewhere this this whole story is written up in like an actual medical journal. You can probably find it somewhere. Uh, yeah, I think there was some kind of in memoriam thing to him. Yeah. I think if we go back in like Andy's Facebook archives, I'm sure you posted this on Facebook at some point. I, I think but, uh, I did because it it might be too deeply buried to find again. Yeah. Oh, there's another awesome footnote here. Apparently, you know, when he was invited to present at this conference, you know, there's an abstract or whatever, and one of his uh, competitors basically said that he would require more proofs than some lousy charts, tables, or graphs. <laughs> pretty great uh okay well i guess oh and he was a he was a visual psychophysicist before he got into well penises (laughs) so kraus uh i can't help but notice that you're a visual psychophysicist now yeah that's not a poster tube i'm bringing with me to the conference (laughs) all right well moving on uh so the other i can't even remember now how this is related but um Oh right! Uh, in, in the in the phenomenon of like whipping it out scientifically speaking, <laughs> uh, is how we got into this, either metaphorically or literally, uh, if, depending on whether you're talking about the ulcer guys or GS Brindley. But um, oh, so the other little story that I just heard a little bit about recently, and I don't have too much detail on this just yet, but uh, basically this uh, Helicobacter pylori, which causes ulcers. First of all, I guess about half of the world's population has this in their gastrointestinal tract anyway, right? So about half of us are infected with this, although I think only of those, I think I read about 15% will actually develop ulcers because of it. And for everybody else, it's just kind of dormant. But the weird research that, uh, I mean, this was written up in the Daily Mail, the UK Daily Mail, but there's at least one publication from last year in... The Journal of Medical Microbiology and Diagnosis, showing that apparently a gulp or two of deep seawater from like uh, about 200 meters or deeper in the ocean can cure you of your Heliobacter pylori. Um, How the hell would anyone figure that out? I don't. This is what I don't know. I mean, this was done in Japan, where they do like seaweed and that kind of thing quite a bit. So maybe I don't know, but uh, yeah, they. Um, Collected the deep sea water offshore from uh, Muroto Kochi, Japan. They desalinated it, and then they refined it to increase the mineral concentration. So the salt wasn't even necessary? I guess it wasn't the salt. Uh, they mentioned the magnesium and the calcium. Uh, so maybe it's those that are having the antibacterial. It just sounds like it could be an osmolarity thing. That's going to screw up your stomach, too. It reduced bacteria numbers by 60% compared with 25% in those cons- consuming conventional water. But yeah, I guess uh, the best thought is that it has something to do with calcium, potassium, and or magnesium. Yeah, so it's just osmotic pressure. But I mean, you know, you could drink bleach and it would kill everything. But that's not (laughs) a good treatment. Including the subject, yeah. 
Yeah, uh, it says there. So basically, I guess the news is that they're going to do a clinical trial with 60 patients, uh, half that'll drink 200 milliliters of deep seawater four times a day, and everybody else will have conventional water, and they'll see if this is actually uh, Couldn't they just put also, the magnesium in the water? Presumably, yeah. But it seems like a lot cheaper than getting a 200-meter pole with a bottle. No, sorry. <laughs> well, actually, yeah, I spent a while thinking about how you get seawater from that deep without, you know, undue expense. Uh, but I guess you just stick a pipe down there, yeah, and then... No, you'd have to have a massive hose to suck it up. A really... Or a massive pump, rather. I've got a massive hose. <laughs> or a really long straw. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. Yes, they actually have to go out to this pier in the ocean and, and suck on it every uh, every day. <laughs> no, I don't know. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> suck it, Trebek. Um <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. I don't know why they came upon this. I need to do some more reading because this was well. It wasn't late breaking. This is from a, a week or two ago, but it was late breaking to me that I just heard about it on a different podcast uh, fairly recently. So I need to look more into why they think this would be the case. But kind of cool nonetheless. It is, yeah, yeah. My my money's on osmolarity. Yeah, but you said they're taking the sodium chloride out, which is going to be the component, you know, the major thing driving the osmolarity difference. Yeah, that's true. Although, if the conventional water kills 25% of them, that must be part of it. Well... Actually, is deep sea water super saline, or is it not very saline? I always forget how this works. I'm not sure. Salinity As a function of depth. depth. Yes. But the salinity of seawater is not... I mean, it's clearly greater than the salinity of, you know, us and yes. bacteria. I thought it was forth. surprisingly close. Yeah, but it's closer than you would think. Like, the whole drinking seawater thing, like, you're not supposed to do it because the salinity is greater, hence it dries you out more than it uh, hydrates you. But it's not by a ton, I don't think. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, no, all right, all right. So it's about 35 grams per liter. And, you know, normal saline is uh, 0.9 grams per liter. Or okay, 9 grams well, per liter, so 0.9%. Wait, what? Say say again? So normal, normal saline is 0.9%, and uh, seawater is 3.5%. Okay, so it is a f- several times, but I guess it's still a f- only a few percentage points. Yeah. yeah, I mean, and when we make, you know, broth for growing bacteria in the lab, you know, that's 10 grams per liter sodium chloride, you know, and that's sort of optimal. I guess that's E. coli, but what, whatever. Yeah, that, that, well, that's, that's 1%, right? So that's, yeah. that's pretty close. Okay, that's, that's interesting. Okay, so it is a couple times bigger. But it's like, basically, it's uh, 0.4... Oh god, this is like the worst table ever. There's like very little pota- very little potassium, a fair bit of magnesium, and basically no calcium. That's weird. Unless it's the yeah. chloride. Yeah, hard to say. So apparently, at least according to this one random site that I'm on right now, on Bigelow.org, that looks like it was designed in like 1994. <laughs> well, because it uses... Here, I'll give you guys the link. It uses approximately like the left quarter of my display, which suggests that it was made for like a 640 by 480 screen. But this claims that salinity generally increases with depth, but there's like one layer where salinity increases sharply called the halocline or halocline. Yeah, that's, a, that's at like 500 meters. Okay. Why do I know so, yeah. like that? <laughs> <laughs> Did it say where they got the seawater from? Uh, you mean the in the Japanese research article? Okay, that probably Japan. Well, yeah, it was near Japan. It was it was some city, some seaside city in Japan. But they said it was from a depth of about 200 meters. 
that's just like the weirdest place to start. Here, drink this. We we dragged it an eighth of a mile up from the sea. Yeah, we're, we're going yeah. to test this hypothesis in the most inconvenient way possible. <laughs> yeah. Could not possibly go to the stock room. That's just out of the question. <laughs> no. Yeah, it looks like, well, at least the Wikipedia article for Halo Klein says that uh, there's typically the first 50 meters of the ocean are pretty low salinity, kind of like floating or swimming on top of the main ocean. And then there's a sharp increase for about the next 150 meters. And then it's like relatively constant for a while. So this is the, one of the hardest graphs I've ever seen to read because the axes are not what you expect them to be. <laughs> like it looks like the X and Y axes are kind of flipped, but... Well, because they want yeah. depth to be, you know... Yeah, but essentially 200 meters would be about where the halocline ends, ends and the, the, the salinity basically asymptotes. So it would be an area of pretty high salinity, but again, the point is that they took out the salt. Um, I'm not sure how much the other minerals you know, change accordingly. Also, I just learned in this Wikipedia article, the I'm just going to refer to the um, concept of salt fingering, which I'm not <laughs> even going to look up. I'm just going to lay it out there. Is the halocline just from the temperature differences? Like the solubility changes? Uh, I think it, according to that website designed in like 1997 or whatever, pressure, temperature, well, I guess these are the factors that influence seawater's density, but I guess it would be both the pressure and the temperature, which kind of go together. Yeah, that would make sense. Yeah. It is interesting that old, like old-timey looking websites somehow feel way less credible. Although I assume <laughs> in like 1994 when that was made that that was, you know... Well, fairly credible. It's, it's actually probably the inverse, right? Because like in the early days of the internet, the only the super nerds could make websites. Yeah, so, that's true. I mean, I don't know if you guys feel this way, but I I remember doing research for papers on the internet in like undergraduate in about 2000, and you know, when you googled for something back then, when you googled for a phrase or something like that, you what you would usually get if it was anything kind of technical was like a university webpage from like some some college course mm-hmm. or just somebody had set up a page like like here's all about the you know nematode or whatever and you know it, it was usually written by some professor or graduate student probably and was therefore probably pretty accurate um, whereas nowadays the the first thing that you get that's vaguely credible is wikipedia and then i usually find it pretty hard to get to find any more of those like actual web pages about things anymore um, and I don't know whether they've gone away or just Google's algorithm has kind of deprioritized them. Yeah, I don't know. I, I suspect they were probably, if anything, like the average, because what you get now is like the people trying to, either Wikipedia or the people trying to make money off this stuff, like about.com, yeah, and yeah. Yahoo Answers and stuff like that. Oh, Yahoo Answers. Which, <laughs> yeah. How is Babby formed? <laughs> they need to do away in Stain Mother. <laughs> but, uh,. Yeah, so I, I don't know. I is that probably is the reader of How Is Babby Formed someone famous? Because he has a great voice. Is there what is this? How is Babby Formed? That guy? I mean, I know the question. I was there. A, so, it was read out loud. Someone made There's it like into a, a cartoon. Okay. Yeah, of a, of two cavemen like discussing it. I'm I'm on it now. <laughs> but he has like a like a Patrick Stewart quality voice. Well, this guy is Chris Bixby. I don't know if he's the one. I'm not sure if he originally posted it. Oh, no. Uh, well, it's been reposted on YouTube several times, so I'm not sure which is the original. No, no. It was like a Flash thing before there was YouTube. I feel like it came out of 4chan or something awful or something like that. Yeah, I don't know. 
Yes. Well, there's a link on albino black sheep. There's a link yes. on something awful. Could be any of those. Oh, wait. Know, know your, your meme. meme. <laughs> know your meme is kind of amazing in that it's like – it feels like actual science research except done on stupid things on the internet. Yeah. It is remarkably well-sourced though. Yeah. Something awful. Good call, Andy. <laughs> so Dave Schmorky Kelly, was that the guy that I referenced on YouTube? No, that was no, a different was Chris, name. Oh, was Chris Bixby, yeah. All right. Well, anyway, probably not super relevant. <laughs> uh, we'll ask uh, Mr. or Dr. Brindley how is bad informed if we need a definitive response. He'd probably show us. <laughs> you should look at the rest of his biography. He sounds ridiculous. Well, yeah, he's – I think he's a good profile. I don't know if there's anything else to tell about him, but he's, he feels like this would be a good profile uh, in our awesome people in science to follow Richard Feynman and uh, Tycho Brahe. All right. We'll do, we'll do that one next time. Yeah, I, I sounds like that. Cool. Yeah. Uh, okay. So maybe more on G.S. Brindley if we can, if we can uh, dig up more. We'll have a hard-hitting uh, investigation. <laughs> It'll be long and hard-hitting? Yes. A long, hard discussion of Giles Brindley's career. <laughs> We'll take a long, hard look at Giles <laughs> Brindley's career. Probably not pharmaceutically mediated, though. <laughs> well, unless you count caffeine. Uh, okay. Actually, caffeine so, has a vaso- oh, vasodilating effect. No, you don't want that. I thought it was vasoconstricting. Uh, huh. Oh, maybe I'm wrong. Theobromine. Yeah, which is, is a vasodilator. It's a vasodilator. Theobromine is just a metabolite of caffeine, despite what like the mate people say and the chocolate yeah. people. But I, oops, sorry. Let's cut my burp out of the podcast there. <laughs> I thought I, I thought I at least remembered caffeine having kind of mixed effects, and maybe that's the issue: is that its metabolites have like. Oh, fortunately, there's a journal article from the International Journal of Vascular Medicine entitled "Caffeine's Vascular Mechanisms of Action" by a bunch of Colombians. <laughs> Using reporting on a remarkably soft drug for Colombia. <laughs> Let's see. Well, it's not super. Nitric oxide is diffused to the vascular smooth muscle to produce vasodilation. In addition, it blocks the adenosine receptors right. present in the vascular tissue to produce vasoconstriction. Yeah, so I think there's kind of competing effects depending on like which metabolite and and caffeine itself and so forth. Huh. There was kind of an apocryphal, or not apocryphal, but a kind of, you know, I, I work in neuroimaging research, and uh, I, I have been told, and I don't know if this is really true, that in some neuroimaging places, they would keep uh, caffeine pills around and offer them to people, because, you know, functional MRI is based uh... on the principle that, like, when you use a brain region, the blood flow increases to that area, and... I had been told that, like, yeah, obviously you can't give people, like, vasodilators to make the fMRI signal look better, but you could give them caffeine, and that some places would try giving people caffeine before they participated in experiments. Is that just um, to keep them from falling asleep and blowing the scan, though? Well, I was going to say, like, I'm not sure how you could easily distinguish between getting better data from people that were just more awake versus uh, getting better data from people that, you know, actually had better vascular flow but yeah I'm it is really... astonishing to me how easily people fall asleep in the scanner well for all of... well i can fall asleep in the scanner yeah i was always you terrified of, terrified of doing that for all of the studies i helped you all and julie pilot that was it was always close oh yeah really it's so loud and uncomfortable so as you might expect 
someone has done research on this actually as recently as last year. So, uh, you know, unlike most of our research, we're only one year behind getting it actually published if we had done something on this. But there's a study called Separating Neural and Vascular Effects of Caffeine Using Simultaneous EEG and FMRI. And let's see. Caffeine can modify FMRI signal responses through both neural and vascular effects, uh, which is what we're talking about. I have to cut all of the pauses out. <laughs> I'm trying to. It, it's a long ass abstract. To avoid the influence of chronic caffeine intake, we examine the effect of 250 milligrams of oral caffeine. That sounds about right. On, that's like five cups of coffee, I think. No, that's like two, two and a half. Uh, I thought a cup of coffee was like 55 milligrams. Maybe that's a Coke. That's about 100. Maybe Coke has 55 milligrams. Yeah. Uh, Mountain Dew has 55. Okay. I, I, I remember that figure from something. Okay. So that's like, what'd you say, like two good-sized cups of coffee? Yeah, two, two and a half. Yeah. I mean, it honestly varies a ton, like even from kind of coffee to kind of coffee. Yeah. Well, you know the thing about uh, the the darkness of the roast and caffeine content? It's flipped, right? Dark has less? Yeah, you'd think dark coffee because it kind of tastes, well, tastes... bolder. Or, so, or you know what I mean. Yeah, it tastes stronger. Tastes coffeeer. Um, actually has less caffeine. Really? Because, hmm. uh, yeah. yeah, because it's been, the reason it's darker is because it's been roasted longer and that actually cooks out some of the caffeine. Interesting. So, but I mean, some of the other bitter alkaloids must be there must be more, right? You mean due to it, like, tasting more bitter? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I guess probably so. I don't think you... Well, caffeine does have a taste, but I don't think you're really tasting the caffeine in coffee, right? I, I Well, maybe you are. I don't know. I mean, caffeine I is... I think it tastes ca- pretty bitter. Caffeine is quite bitter, yeah. It is, but, um, I mean, like, I, I guess it can't be... Well, actually, I, I'm looking at the Coke Zero I just uh, drank out of the bottle of... And it says caffeine content, 57 milligrams per 20 fluid ounces. And I just drank a, but actually out of this bottle, I was drinking like a crystal light energy thing that is basically just like, you know, caffeine and uh, artificial sweetener. It, it obviously doesn't take that much sweetener to mask the caffeine, right? Because you can like, you know what I mean? So it can't be that bitter. So I'm assuming most of the bitter taste in the coffee is other stuff. comes from other stuff. Yeah. yeah, because you can make something caffeinated that doesn't taste bitter at all pretty easily. That you know that has, or like an energy drink, right? Like has way more caffeine than coffee. Yeah, yeah. But does not taste at all yeah. bitter. So bold signal change in visual and motor cortex was significantly reduced by caffeine, while the amplitude of visual evoked potentials remained unaltered. So, so for the listeners, because that part is actually useful, your EEG signal would not be affected by caffeine, at least uh, at least by the vascular effects. Because it's purely electrical. Yeah, because it's based on the electrical activity of your neurons, whereas the fMRI signal would because it's based on the blood flow. So that suggests that, like, the actual vascular effect reduces bold signal, but there is a a significant effect of caffeine. Oh, it did reduce a potential called P300 in this task, but basically that people did get much better at the task. So anyway, basically, I think it it makes you better because you're more alert. Probably the reason it improves your p300 latency is because you're paying closer attention so although it produces a lesser effect in that particular potential we don't really need to get into why that is but that makes sense so yeah it makes you it makes you behaviorally better but it does actually reduce your vascular flow it looks like yep Ah, so now we know all right well we could leave um we could leave the beer we're in a good spot here yeah we could leave the beer thing for another time 
I wanted to call this article, I guess we can still call this article, I wanted to call it Beers and Gears, uh, <laughs> unless we come up with something better than that. That's pretty good. We've, uh, we've got enough gear things in here, I think. Yeah, yeah. So maybe I can, we can talk about Oktoberfest later. Anybody else got anything lightning roundy they really want to talk about? Uh, I've got one. Sure, go for it. So this guy, Michael Eisen, who's a professor at UC Berkeley and also a Howard Hughes professor, and was also involved in the founding of the PLOS journals. Well, we just he, talked about him earlier, right? Because I made my Michael Eisner joke. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I I think it's yeah. the same Michael Eisen, but I'm not 100% sure. It's, it's, I would assume it must be, but yeah, go ahead. So he, uh, so he's a an open access evangelist. So oh, yeah. I, like, I follow him on Twitter. He's very strongly pro open access journals, things like that. So recently, five papers were published in Science with data from the Mars Curiosity rover. Uh, oh, how do we skip he that? Was pretty we found water on friggin' Mars. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So, so he was pretty pissed off about the fact that these were, you know, NASA papers that were behind a paywall in a science journal because, you know, it's publicly funded science. So he just downloaded all the PDFs and posted them on his blog. That's pretty great. For people to download, um, and basically said to science, just kind of come at me, like, yeah, you know, come at me, bro. Yeah, like, and sort of preemptively got a copyright lawyer and said, if you know, if the authors want to make an issue of this, I'm ready to, I'm ready. Well, the weird thing is, the U.S. government can't claim copyright, right? So, right, right. So, uh, presumably, he's like definitely in the clear. Well, it can't claim copyright, but also, like, no one, you can't sell the U.S. government's non-copyright. You know what I mean? Like, U.S. government work, I believe, cannot. You know what I mean? Like, nobody else can claim the copyright for U.S. government work. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's explicitly public domain. I mean, you right. could sell a copy, but I could just go, you know, I could sell your, I could make copies of your copy and sell them, too. Right. So. Yeah, because that's in every authorship agreement you ever sign, is that if you're a U.S. government employee, you know, you can't transfer the copyright because there can't be a copyright. Right, right. Yep. So, so I don't know if, you know, I don't know if it's, it's an interesting thing that happened. I'm sort of interested to see how it will play out. Yeah. Oh, he got, oh, actually, it played out more. I don't know. I just looked at his website like 20 minutes ago, and uh, NASA put up a copy of the papers oh. and has said that they will be, you know, more on top of this in the future. Oh, well, that's that's awesome. Yeah, so it's a big win for him. Yeah, that's that's exactly that's cool. how that should have gone down. So just uh, an update. So, you know, we he first came up when we were talking about the Toxoplasma Gandhi in PLOS One, and it does say as a little thing in that article that it's the same Michael Eisen although not the same as Michael Eisner, who is the president of Disney. And also, I mean, this is kind of what, um, you know, you guys remember Aaron Swartz, right? The um, uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. guy who worked, he worked with Reddit. He did all kinds of web stuff um, and committed suicide, right? Uh, fairly recently uh, in January, I think. But um, one of the things that he got in trouble for was like systematically downloading articles from JSTOR I can't remember if he was actually sharing them or just with the intent to share them, but his his thing was that he wanted to download this whole repository of academic articles and make them publicly available, which is a little bit different than what uh, Eisen was doing. But, you know, yeah. this is an issue that came up recently. Yeah, I mean... And we'll... but can I ask a question about that? How did he get JSTOR to work that quickly? <laughs> so <laughs> It's true. It's I would love to download horrible. like a single PDF from JSTOR and have it work. I, yeah. I think he set up some sort of script so it was just like perpetually just systematically yeah, it was just downloading spidering jstor and yeah, yeah sucking everything out of it oh yeah i'm just snarking it they're terrible they do something well, to the pdfs that make them enormous and slow to read on my computer well at least 
the last time I used JSTOR, which I think was in the early 2000s, yeah, they, they had something where like every page of it came up as a separate image. And, you know, then if you were lucky enough to get the PDF, it was basically a stitched together thing of all those page images rather than, rather than, you know, a typical PDF that is like a mixture of text and pictures. But yeah, uh, I think it might've gotten better since I'm not sure. It's funny, actually, these Mars Rovers papers don't have as many people on them as you'd think. I mean, they have a lot of authors, but not like, we put a robot on Mars number of authors. Not like the Human Genome Project, the first oh, big yeah, paper yeah. from that had like a thousand authors, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah, and everything from autism, the autism uh, research, what is it? They have this massive, it, it just says like, the autism, is it coalition? Anyways, they, yeah, they have like 900 authors. Yeah. I wonder how much jostling there is for uh, order in... Uh... I'm not 908th author. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, you know, but me and the 909th guy, there's an asterisk indicating that our contributions <laughs> were equal. <laughs> Both authors looked vaguely in the direction of Mars. Uh, yeah, I don't know what the record is on number of authors on a scientific publication, but I imagine it's one of those projects is it. Oh, no, they're alphabetical, I think, at, at some point. Yeah, I think they those really long ones tend to switch over to alphabetical once the yeah, I guess the, the front few and back few have gotten into the right uh, order. Yeah, yeah, the first like ten seem to be you know random, which means they must mean something. And then it's like Mister D Archer, who is like, yes, good call on the name, <laughs> <laughs> and also Mister A Yinkst, who's like, yep, that's my Mars rover, guys. Yes, but anyway, well it. Y- the copyright thing is a whole discussion we should probably have at some later time because that's there's sort of a changing tide in science I think towards more open publication and stuff but it's not it's not there yet obviously so we can we can tease this for next time too I just saw a thing in the Economist where there are apparently people in China making counterfeit journals so it's like the journal but you can stick your your own article in there oh wow oh you mean like like fake copies of Science and Nature I guess. The article is kind of vague and also just entirely fake journals. So if you want to, you know, pad your CV, you can submit to the journal of something. Well, it's it's interesting. I mean, this is a, a longer discussion for later. But, you know, I just came from Malaysia where, uh, you know, no offense to all the fine Malaysians. But, like, you know, the quality of uh, of research there is not up to our standards, especially, you know, we're all we've all been to some top tier universities in the U.S. and Canada. And, you know, that's just the fact. Like, it's a more less developed country or a more developing country. And, you know, a lot of the research faculty don't even have PhDs. You know, they have just master's degrees. And, you know, they're trying to bring up the level of education research and stuff, but it's a long climb. But, you know, you see people publish when they do actually get research published. It's in a lot of these really super obscure journals. And I would get all these emails to participate in these really, these conferences I'd never heard of Mm -hmm. and so forth. And there's, there's a long tail of, I won't necessarily call it bad research, but low impact research. And at some point it transitions from, you know, just sort of like not very impactful or interesting research to complete garbage. But the the transition is, there's a large gray area in between where it's a little hard to spot, which is which. Yes. Well, yes. so, I mean, there's this, I don't, and I don't remember any of the journal titles or publisher titles or anything like that, but there's this story that, I think it was published in the Retraction Watch blog, which is a great blog. Ah, uh, that's popular in my lab. Yes. But it's, you know, there's this publisher, I think it was located in India, who sort of just overnight set up something like 250 different journals. Yeah. 
you know, and kind of set up like sham-ish editorial boards. And it was clearly just these sort of like low standard journals that people could get their stuff in to pad their CVs. But because in India, like some other countries, there's a premium on getting your work published in a journal that is not located in India, like having your work published in a European or North American journal, you know, looks really good. A couple of the journals that were organized by this sham publisher were actually titled things like the Foreign Journal of Neuroscience, <laughs> uh, which That's is, awesome. yeah. The not Indian Journal of Neuroscience. Did he say I could have succeeded except for those meddlesome kids? <laughs> I mean, as far as I know, it still exists. Uh, I don't, you know, I don't think they've committed any crimes aside from just being scientifically shifty. Yeah. Speaking of scientifically shifty, did you see that Mark Hauser has a new book coming out? Uh, <laughs> let's maybe we can talk about Mark Hauser another time. I don't want to arouse anyone's ire. Oh, my ire is already aroused. It's about well, evil. You and G.S. Brindley. <laughs> <laughs> so I will tease one G.S. Brindley fact for next time. He was 57 when he pulled this stunt. <laughs> this that that cunning stunt. <laughs> mm. Do you want to close with a uh, an animal penis thought? Well, uh, yeah, but I, I had a comment before we like totally go off the journal thing. I mean, I had a, a further comment like related to that Indian journal thing, which is just I think for us that that's sort of the question, or that that is sort of the question we engage in when we talk about publishing in one of these open access journals, where the the idea of them is that they are, for our listeners that are practicing scientists, the idea is that they are more what like what how do you how would you say it like. You can publish in them more easily because the work is not vetted for its potential impact so much as it is like. Wait, wait, no, 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 no. The open, the open access just means that you don't have to pay a subscription. Well, sorry, open access is not a good word to use. Um, but journals like plus, like plus one is one, pretty good. Plus one is pretty good, but it doesn't. It accepts more stuff than other journals do. Like a lot of, I mean, there are journals that are. I think they are founded on the principle that impact should not be the primary determiner of what gets your work accepted, right? Well, I mean, plus one is also there. sort of like that, right? Right, that's what I mean, like... Okay, so I mean, I, the, the whole point behind the open access movement is that, you know, most of this research is publicly funded, so it should be publicly available without a subscription or having things behind a paywall or anything like that. Also, does anyone right. ever actually buy an article? Like, I can't imagine they actually make any money charging 40 bucks for an article that no one really is going to read anyway. Like, I'd love to see that number. Yeah, that actually pay the cover price. But, uh, but I mean, there are a lot of journals uh, also springing up. I mean, and, and I think Plus One does have this kind of philosophy that they accept stuff, you know, not not based on its potential impact per se, but based on... You know, a check of of the scientific methodology, but the review is not focused on is this impactful enough to be considered because the idea is that the scientific community will view it and then kind of up or down vote it. Yeah, yeah. You know. Right. That right, it's right. Yeah. It's not necessarily the it's not necessarily the journal who figures out what's impactful. It should be the yeah, the scientific community will figure that out right. once it's all out there and available. Which is independent from the question of like whether or not you need to pay for access to them, but it happens that that is sort of, you know, a lot of these you know journals 2.0 kind of ventures, 
have both of those philosophies, right? That like, and you know, they're dinged somewhat, somewhat justifiably for like the idea that what funds them is that the authors pay more to get them published. Right. And of course there are always charges associated with publication or, or frequently there are, but they tend to have much higher publication charges. So, you know, the allegation is, are you paying to get your work published in these journals? So there's a lot of issues like that, but um, as scientists, I, I mean, we're discussing this recently because we're looking at publishing something in one of these types of journals. And the question is, you know, what looks better? Well, I mean, it looks best to have your work published in nature or science, but you can't always get your work published in the, those super top tier journals. And sometimes you just need to get something out before someone scoops it. And basically, I, I got to say, I don't know that plus one people look down on plus one, at least not very well, that, much. That's the thing is, I think it looks better to be published in like one of the top tier journals, but I think it certainly looks better to be published in a more open journal than it does to be published in, you know, like the Ukrainian Journal of Investigative Neuroscience or something like that, you know, uh, that you've never heard of. And, and that's what I was going to say is I think it sort of sets like it's sort of a baseline. It's sort of like the a neutral baseline of publications. And there are some things above it and some things below it, but it's not a bad, you know what I mean? It sort of sets like a kind of, yeah, I mean, the plus impact factor is four, which means people are reading it. Yeah. And I think it has sort of a neutral valence associated with it when you, you know, if you see something published in Nature, you think that must be a really good article. And if you see something published in a journal you've never, ever heard of, you think, well, that must not be any good. But I think these open ones are kind of in between. Well, I think if I see something in PLOS, like, I'm fairly sure it's technically correct, but it might be really boring. Yeah. Whereas, as Greg McCarthy says, it's so wrong it can only be in Nature. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, that's the thing is there's the, you know, the really kind of shocking statistics about the percentage of science and nature papers that ever get cited, yeah. which is, you know, low. I don't know what the number is off the top of my head, but it's, it's lower than you might expect. Yeah. Well, I know that the modal number of citations for any journal article anywhere is zero by a long shot. But of course, that is because like 80% of all published research is total garbage that will never get read because it is in this long tail uh, of, of crappy journals, but even in like pretty respected journals, like a lot of, a lot of pretty good journals, you know, articles in them never get cited at all. I'm looking at the impact factor list from last year. Yeah. There's a, a whole page of Indian journal of X <laughs> and only one, two, three of them crack one. Oh, four of them crack one. Which is nothing against, you know, like, I think that's the sort of joke we tend to make is the like name of random country journal of, you know, name of science format. Uh, and it's nothing against those countries. It's just that like the best journals tend to be sort of, but there, we so often said that like, we think there's an inverse correlation between journal length, journal name length and journal quality, right? Yeah. So the more words in your description of the journal, the less good a journal it probably is. Are you saying the journal of gerontology B sub uh, psychology is not a good journal? I'm sure it's okay. Or the journal of Czech geosciences, the impact factor <laughs> of 0.12. Is that really a journal? Yeah. <laughs> hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's a good example, right? Like, you know, we joke, but, the, you know, I, I think there is a Malaysian Journal of Psychology or something like that. But, you know. Hold on. Not in the M's yet. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, but, but, you know, when I, was, when I was there, like, as much as I would like to support the local scientific community, like, I think it makes more sense. There's a Malaysian Journal of Computer Science, impact factor 0.167. Awesome. With 17 articles published, so that means one was cited. <laughs> yeah. Pro probably by someone else publishing a later article in that same journal, like by, the, by their own group. 
But, you know, it's sort of like, it's, it's like the Yale acapella group effect, you know, where like Yale has a couple of really famous, you know, to the extent that people get into acapella groups, some of the most famous high quality acapella groups in the world. But because of rejected overachiever syndrome, every time somebody doesn't get into the whiff and poofs or women rhythm, which are the top two, they form a new, they get sullen and form a new acapella right, group, right, right. you know, for, and you know, this has trickled to the point where I think there are now about 25 acapella groups on the Yale campus, which is far more acapella groups than probably need to exist on earth. Cause I mean, you know, I've seen Glee, uh, everybody goes <laughs> to regionals, like, you know, anyway, you know what I mean? Like you don't, the problem is like, after a certain point in quality, after the top few, like, who cares? I think you should just work harder on getting into the good stuff um, because, you know, there's no time for everyone to read all the the bad research and the good research, you know? No, I don't know well, if I agree with that, yeah, actually. I I, yeah, there I should mean, be a lot more null results published. Well, null results is one thing, but, like, there's... But there's a lot of things that are, like, you know, could be interesting but turn out not to be, and those just get file drawered over and over and over again. Yeah, but I'm just talking about, like, really just... I guess this is the problem, though, is, like, there's just bad research out there. Like, the thing is, if you read some of these these journals that have no impact factor, you quickly realize, like, and how incredibly flawed they are. Like, you, you realize that they are done by people that had no right to be doing research, except, uh, again, like, a lot of it's people that don't know any better because the education where they are is not that good, and they're doing the best they can. But you know what I mean? It's It's research that wouldn't even pass, like, the quick triage test of like is this fundamentally done even vaguely right and that's what i think is in like the bottom at least the bottom 50 percent or so of journals is a lot of that kind of stuff okay i found the lowest impact factor so far on this table i don't know what it stands for but it's am b j be like the bug Hmm. impact factor of 0.08 that's pretty impressive and the american bj (laughs) oh so many jokes to be had (laughs) Come on, that's a perfect reality set you up nicely. Anyways, we should wrap um, this up. I, I would not say that that's a low-impact situation. <laughs> but that's just me. Andy, did you want to do your uh, speed round thing? Yeah, I think all I had was the, the Eisen thing. Oh, wait, didn't somebody have a penis lightning round? Oh, I think that was Krauss. Oh, that was Johnson, the, the, the penis fossils. Oh, well, that's okay. We can We can leave that for another day, I guess. All right. It'll stay hard. Yes. Yes. The fossils, <laughs> the, the penis, the penis fossils stay hard longer than GS Brindley. Oh boy. <laughs> <laughs> That's Andrew Bellamar, or I guess it's Andrew Bellamar. That name again is not at all regretting <laughs> his association with this podcast now. <laughs> all right. Uh, well, yeah. I guess. Oh we no! The of... MBJ has been trumped by the Serbian Journal of Applied Math, Series B. <laughs> Boy, uh, yeah, Eastern Europe really not doing so well with the journals these days. All right, well, I guess we should wrap up um, and say thanks to our special guest, Andrew Bellamer. Well, thank you. This has been fun. We have enjoyed having you. So a little little bookkeeping stuff at the end of the show. Just uh, a reminder that if you want to look at show notes, you should go to sshmm.wordpress.com. Or, of course, you could just Google for the Super Science Happy Hour with Matt and Matt. You should subscribe to us on iTunes. Uh, or with your favorite other podcatcher, you can get the link to the generic uh, feed on our website. We do have some episodes up on YouTube, but we've fallen a little behind in putting those up. So uh, more will come soon with that. 
Uh, you can follow us on Twitter. Our handle is sshapho, S-S-H-A-P-H-O. Uh, <laughs> the, the best uh, approximation of our name. And again, thanks to our uh, previous guest co-host, Larry Skelly, for getting our Twitter started. Uh, we need to tweet more with that, but more of that will happen soon. I think that's it. And feel free to send us money if you've got money to send us. Uh, we'll take it. There's a place on our website you can do that. And uh, any other stuff we need to mention? Anything, uh, anything you need to plug, Andy? Oh, I don't think so. Uh... <laughs> if you happen to be reviewing Andy's papers anytime soon, don't, don't hold this if, against him. Or if your department has a faculty position. Uh... <laughs> yeah, if your department has three faculty positions, we get along pretty well. <laughs> yes, we, we collaborate excellently, as you can tell from this podcast. Our demands are relatively minor. <laughs> One million dollars. Startup. Yes. Actually, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that actually is our demand. <laughs> that's that's semi, semi-reasonable. In small, unmarked bills. Uh, all right. Well, uh, on that note, I'm going to go and uh, prepare to watch the Breaking Bad finale and uh, contemplate alternative careers as a scientist. <laughs> Good luck with that. Thanks. All right. Uh, well, I all guess right. we will bid you adieu, Internet people. Thanks for listening. Talk to you soon. Catch you later. Thanks for listening. Yeah, well, I mean, the voice has probably told her about yeah. that theory. <laughs> Maybe take that part out. <laughs> yeah. We'll burn these files afterwards. Oh, by the way, Lisa, my roommate, uh, says hi. Oh, it's really hi. weird when you introduce her like that. Hi, Lisa. Hi, Lisa. Uh, I mean, she's not right next to me, but uh, I will. Oh, I'll just in general? Me. Well, she texted me. Uh, <laughs> she texted me just a couple minutes ago saying, like, uh, do you, need, do you need anything from Wendy's? And I was like, nope, just had Burger King, but thanks. Um, so you, would, you would both be offended that uh, the Burger King here now sells Southern Barbecue or oh. Le Barbecue du Sud. It looks what, what not at all that? like barbecue. It's some kind of meat and some kind of sauce, which is also not barbecue sauce. Uh, question. Relative to Canada, isn't all barbecue Southern Barbecue? <laughs> <laughs> Northern barbecue is just ice. Yeah, it's <laughs> traditional uh, Newfoundland barbecue. Yeah, North, Northern barbecue is like whale blubber, right? <laughs> Seals. Yeah. <laughs> Freshly clubbed. Uh, when someone, so uh, this may have to go in the podcast, although some, certain names maybe have to change to protect the guilty. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but I came into lab one day. And we have like a little, you know, a little sink in lab, just a kitchen sink kind of thing uh, for getting water. Well, I guess everyone knows what sinks are for, right? So, <laughs> um, so there is a sign next to it. There is like a little thing of, you know, liquid dish soap or liquid hand soap on the on the sink. And there was a little card next to it that said, like, in effect, if you spill any soap on the sink, please wipe it up or something like that. Um, and it's a stainless steel sink, and it's soap, which you know, like. If anything, if you spill, like, a drop of soap on the stainless steel sink, you are making it cleaner, which just, like, boggled my mind that somebody thought we needed, like, a passive-aggressive note to, uh, you know, to well, tell everyone. That, that's a, that's a minor annoyance at best. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, but apparently someone got really tweaked about the, uh, about the, uh, a drop of soap they found on the sink. <laughs> the only things that might happen on my end is there's a non-zero chance that I'll have a coughing attack. Um, in which case I'll just duck out for a minute. There's also a, a small chance that one of the cats will come into the room and make a lot of noise.
That's okay. Internet oh. loves cats, I think. Yeah, no, yeah, I mean, I, because of the toxoplasmosis, right? You're you're just you're hoping for that, actually. Yeah, no, that's it, true. That would be, if if possible, if you could get the cat to come in right <laughs> as we're talking about that. I think that, that would be totally awesome. appropriate, um, and I'm sure they will disappoint us. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yes, the cats heard you, and now they're definitely not going to do that. Yeah, so I think everything recorded fine on my end. Um, yep, I think we're good. Okay, I'm going to stop. Rec- oh yeah, so I guess I guess we're going to st- we're we're all out of cleverness, right? Yep, I think so. All right. I'm completely so, out of cover this. <gasps> no, I found a lower impact journal. The Chinese Journal of Pet Processing. <laughs> Not making this up. Oh, no, sorry. It's 0.12 instead of 0.012. Oh. <laughs> so um, it actually has some impact. I mean, this would be the second Chinese people eating household pets joke I've <laughs> almost made in the podcast today. But No, but it has is... a low impact factor, so clearly they don't. What does the Chinese Journal of Pet Processing entail? Because I, I, I don't know. it being made into but, sausages. I will say that the Journal of Chinese Pet Processing has one-fifth the impact factor of the Chinese Journal of Anal Chem. <laughs> I... Oh, we didn't get to... Speaking of Anal Chem, Kraus, did you put the uh, link in about the um, the anal glands? Oh, I did. Because I've uh, seen it twice. Oh, did I miss that? Uh, the, the... Well, here, we can tease it for well, this time. You said artificial vanilla vanillin, which I only know because I heard the same article and thought about talking about it. Well, so I looked it up, and it turns out that like basically no... Uh, vanillin comes from beaver butts. It's like 300 pounds per year total um, from beavers and 2.6 million pounds per year from trees. Okay. Uh, so your Safeway brand ice cream is not made of beaver ass. The hot dogs might be, but the, the ice cream The basic story was that, uh, what is it, the Swedish or some somewhere in Scandinavia, they had some discussion as to whether it was okay to continue making artificial vanilla from beaver anal glands. That's, they are using perfume. That's yeah. Fascinating. They have a, a, vanil- a vanilloid, vanilloid compound in them. Yeah, that you can get vanilla out of. But uh, you know, it's much easier to chop down a tree and pulp it than it is to yeah. catch a beaver. Which I think you know. It. Well, yeah, you don't have to tell me about it. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh. <laughs> uh. <laughs> Well, I was going to say, I think the standard joke that was being made where I was hearing this article was, you know, the question is who first discovered that the beaver anal glands taste like vanilla, but... Well, I think you can smell it. Well... You can smell vanilloid. I can't say that word. Yes, but again, how close are you getting is the question. No, but they use them for perfume. So, like, you know, since people trap fevers... Yeah, I know, but still, the point is, at some point, before they started using them for anything, someone had to get fairly close to a beaver's ass. Yeah, that's true. I'd rather take yeah. the butcher's word for it. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that joke is completely insane without any context. Uh, what? I, the, I, I feel like I know this joke, but I don't actually know if I know it. it. It's, it's from the movie Tommy Boy with Chris Farley. Oh, right, right, right. <laughs> yes. Uh, great film. Indeed. All right. On that All note, right. shall we stop being clever or interesting? Yeah, yeah I think we're done. All right, so I'm going to stop. All right, right, stopping. Stop.